Good evening. I'd like to call this September 26, 2023 school board work session and close meeting to order. Ms. Goodell, could you please take the roll? Yes, Dr. Anderson. Here. Dr. Dimmick. Here. Ms. Downs. Here. Dr. Gould. Here. Ms. Silverman. Here. And Ms. Tice. Here. Thank you. Thank you. If you could join me in saying the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. We are at 1.4, If I could have someone uh, make a motion to adopt the agenda, please. Chair, I move we adopt the agenda as presented. Thank you. Could I have a second? Thank you, Ms. Tice. All those in favor say yes. Yes. All those opposed say no. Thank you. Motion carries and we have an agenda. We're now at um, number two, um, our work session, item number two, our work session. But before that, I think, Dr. Noonan, you wanted to um, kick us off with a few words. I do. Thank you so much. Um, so before we get started with 2.01 student performance data, I just wanted to make sure that everybody um, in the community, I know the board knows and everybody on this side of the table is aware. Um, and Mr. Lewin, I don't know if you know or, or you got the message yet, but um, Valerie Hardy has decided to um, accept a promotion position in Prince William County as the managing director for elementary support. So essentially um, what she'll be doing in Prince William County is Uh, schools and so we're very excited for her um, I have uh, often said you know you keep the best people you can for as long as you can um, treat them right train them well and, and hope that they'll move on into a, a bigger and better position and this is one of those circumstances where Valerie had an opportunity to move into a bigger and better position so I'm um, really excited for her um, I had a chance today to address the high school and middle school staff at about 345 and um, I did share that, you know, Valerie was my first draft pick when I came as the superintendent in uh, the city of Falls Church, and she was sort of the perfect fit at the perfect time to uh, really um, settle the waters a little bit at Mary Ellen Henderson, who was going, that was going through a rough time. Um, and then when the secondary campus became a secondary campus, she was the obvious choice there. And um, she's got two really great leaders in those two buildings, uh, in Mr. Laub and Mr. Pickering. Um, and I have my fullest confidence in their abilities along with their administrative teams and the extraordinary teachers that we have and staff in the building to carry on and do a great job. Um, so, so we wish her the very best. I do want to let the board know, um, and I think you already know this, I hope you already know this, um, but maybe more for the community, um, that we do hope to announce an interim within the next week or so uh, to start on October 9th. Um, in the meantime, Mr. Bates, who's online tonight, um, has agreed to move to the high school uh, into temporary quarters for about three weeks to provide some opportunity for that first week of October and then provide some overlap with um, the interim who's coming in. Um, as soon as the interim's paperwork is completed uh, and, and turned in and, and goes through our processing, I'll announce who that is. Um, and then in terms of filling the position, um, we are interested in making sure that we get the very best candidate that we can get um, out there, whether they're a national candidate or even an international candidate. And we have had some interest already from, um, not, a, not around this position, but others before uh, from international candidates. And so one of the things we want to be sure 
to uh, provide as an opportunity for anyone and everyone um, at the right time to apply for this position. And this uh, timing is not right. Um, so we will advertise uh, probably in the January, February timeline uh, for a July 1 start. So we'll know in the spring who the new um, head of schools will be uh, for the following year. But we want to make sure that we get the very best candidate out there. So. Um, I got uh, some good feedback from the staff today when I said that the interim will be coming in and will be there for the entirety of the year. Um, they, and I, I said, you know, I felt like right now is not a good time for multiple changes uh, for continuity purposes, particularly with um, a couple of new leaders in those two buildings, even though both of them have a lot of experience. So, um, so we're really excited uh, for Valerie, but I'm also excited for um, Meridian and for Mary Ellen Henderson. I think. Uh, there's some great opportunities for us on the horizon uh, to do some really uh, extraordinary things with a, another leader. So thanks for that opportunity. Thank you, Dr. Noon. I, I know I speak on behalf of the board uh, when I say that we'll, we're indebted to, to Ms. Hardy for her leadership and um, really her, uh, I guess, display of how you can be an empathetic leader. I think when, when my oldest son, who is now a college sophomore, he was an eighth grader when Ms. Hardy came. And I, it was, a, as you know, a time we really needed some stability at the high school. A lot of, a lot of things had happened. And so she just brought that, that stability and uh, just, again, a, a warming presence, a warm presence at, at the middle school and was a rising star and, and shot up all the way up to head of secondary schools very quickly. And so and she was the first one in this position and I think did a great um, showed us what, what we can do with that position and really helped us merge those two buildings together and have one cohesive communication plan and just um, really having it be one campus. And she really did that under her leadership. So we we're really grateful for her. And I know I know it's it's bittersweet for you too, having brought her over. Um, but that's sort of like when we, we have our kids send them off after after high school and Sean will be going, you're sending your professionals off, right? So, to, so uh, best of luck to her. And um, again, Ms. Hardy, if you're listening, thank you so much for your years of dedication. Okay, we're going to move on now to 2.01 student performance data, and I guess I'll just shoot it right back over to you, Dr. Yeah, Newton. yeah. Tonight's an exciting night. Um, something I think that you all have been waiting for, and I think our community has as well, um, to talk about some achievement updates in the city of Falls Church. Um, so we are uh, proud to have Dr. William Bates online. He's attending a conference with uh, some folks out of town, um, and is coming via Zoom. And Dr. Weilenman here uh, to present the information. Um, this time, um, based on some feedback we've received in the past uh, from a variety of board members, we went a little bit off script and uh, we invited in two school board members to help us with the presentation. Um, so I want to thank Dr. Gould, Vice Chair Gould, and uh, Dr. Anderson for your support, um, providing us uh, some thinking points and some structural points to help us really be able to put together the best presentation that we could to really communicate what, uh, what it is that we're doing uh, in, in our schools, because ultimately these data that we're gonna share tonight are communication tools for us to be able to share some of the really great things that are happening in our schools, but also some areas where we need to continue to grow. Um, as we kick it off tonight, um, and I turn it over to uh, Dr. Weilman, I, I will say, uh, for what it's worth, we did receive word today that for the fifth year in a row, we were named the top school division in Virginia based on the niche uh, rating, um, which matters because um, it is what people look at when they're looking for homes um, and, and looking for places to live. So uh, we're very proud of that. And then you'll see in the data tonight, 
um, sort of where, where the school system is relative to the rest of the state with respect to our uh, scores as well. So um, with that as our kickoff, um, I believe the presentation tonight um, is going to be in two parts. The first part um, are going to be um, some of the uh, metrics and measures that have been shared previously that are not SOL related um, and not, um, not necessarily IB or AP or SAT or ACT related, but instead some of the other things that make us the really rich uh, and robust school system that we are, um, that people have come to know and, and, and really come to um, desire. Uh, and at that point, I believe that Dr. Bates and Dr. Weilerman will be uh, appreciative of any questions that you may have. And then we'll go into the second part of the presentation, which is a little bit more of the, um, the data pieces that some people have been sort of accustomed to seeing, you know, SOL data and the like. So um, with that, I'll turn it over to uh, Dr. Bates to get us going. So um, we, we looked at about, um, I think, 20 minutes, maybe the first part, maybe 40 minutes for the second part or vice versa. So take us away. two and a half to three years, and it shows in our data. But we also know that there are some areas where we need to make a, a few improvements and really continue to dig in, and we'll talk about that. I would also be remiss if I didn't start off by saying uh, thank you to Dr. Weilenman and, and his team, because this isn't something that we just pull together. It takes a collaborative effort. Um, he spent the better part of the last um, four to five weeks collaborating with a number of school folks and uh, office fo central office folks, as well as uh, Peter had mentioned, um, two of our board members who um, have an interest in data, but also have an interest in our, our school division and improvement in our school division and gave us some, some really good feedback that we um, hope you'll see in the presentation tonight. But for our purpose, we wanted to look at two things. One is to give an update on the enhancements of our data resources. And then secondly, we want to look at overall how the district performed in specific areas related to our state and IB data, our student data, and then also staff and, and family feedback. We know that uh, those are important data points that we uh, need to have a good, keen understanding of in order to make improvements in our school division. We have our mission and vision here, so I won't read that to you, but I think we would all agree when we put our mission and our vision at the center of the work that we do along with our strategic plan focus points, focus areas, that um, if we're doing our work in earnest, then we can't do that without putting these items here at the center. And so as we think about being the premier IB school um, division in the nation or in, in the world, but then also providing um, environments and curriculum and instruction that is centered around students as our focus um, or focal point, that uh, we're really able to do this work in earnest. And as a result, we see marked improvements and gap closing. And I'll take it from there. 
So I'll turn it over to Dr. Weileman, who's going to take us through the majority of the presentation, and then we will answer questions, and then I'll jump back in later in the presentation. Thank you, Dr. Bates, Dr. Noonan, Chair Downs, Co-Chair Gould, and the entire board. Uh, I'm excited to share with you uh, the FCC community and multiple data sets that we reviewed for school year 22-23. Um, I start with this graphic. This is something we came up with this year because uh, we are expanding what we're looking at, and I really appreciate that as a district we're doing that, um, that we're not just looking at state data, but we're looking at a variety of sources. But, but with that hand-in-hand hand looking at, we're also looking at our tools on how teachers can collect that data. It's an exciting time in technology, and uh, there are many new opportunities we have to increase what we're using for teachers to collect data and see data and do data analysis. So that's kind of one of our goals in our department is to really make sure we're looking at that. And with that being said, um, we move on to the next slide there, sorry. Um, purpose one is to provide an update on those enhancements in the, in the data resources that we're looking, looking at. So about a year, for last a year ago last spring we came and talked to you about some of the things we're looking at um, as far as data tools data sets um, I remember uh, I call it the Phil Rudinger uh, night because he really appreciated that we were taking a look at how we're getting data we're cleaning data we're taking looks at it um, we're looking at identification um, we're looking at integrity we're looking at access and, and student and parent access and so we've used that uh, as a kind of a springboard to making some adjustments to what we're doing. And, and before I move on, I would be remiss if I didn't thank um, my colleagues in uh, the uh, assessment office, uh, Steve Knight and Leah Kirk, who worked tirelessly behind the scenes um, cleaning up data. Uh, our registrars, who are absolutely fabulous and um, clean up, help parents register, do all that behind the scenes things that you know people don't notice unless they're not working. Um, so I want to send a shout out to them as well. And of course, the CIT, CIA team, uh, school-based staff and teachers who really came to our data summit last year and kind of decided, you know, this is a really good idea. We need to take data and really leverage it in making our decision. So wanted to send that out to um, all of those staff members who have really kind of helped us move our data to kind of a new stage as we move forward. Um, so some of the things we've done in year one are we took our, our basic coding in PowerSchool and we've moved it kind of to a baseline. Uh, it was a lot of work. We consolidated data. Um, we made changes to what we were doing. We did some data audits to make sure our, our data was accurate. Um, and all, again, although people didn't see it, we started automating certain tasks so they would be the data would be better. And then one of the big pieces we did this year was the the having parents verify the data through registration. So this year is a very different look. Um, we got lots of positive feedback on it. it. Was much quicker. We still had some hiccups. We knew we would, but it's getting better and better every year. But for us on the back end, the data is much cleaner. It's much more accurate. And so we continue to look at how we can streamline that system, make the data clean for staff to be able to reach out to students or parents. And vice versa, long term, we'll be looking at ways for parents to access data through their parent porthole in PowerSchool. So it's important to kind of do some of these steps that, again, people don't notice unless they're broken. Um, but it's, it's a lot of work kind of behind the scenes, but we're getting there. I, I feel us moving in the right direction. So I'm very excited about that kind of information. Um, we also uh, are having better access for staff. So for the first time in a long, long time, uh, at new teacher orientation, staff had access to the platforms. 
And when teachers came back to school, many of those platforms were sunk up. And you may remember that last year that wasn't necessarily the case. That was one of our big goals to make sure that they had access day one. We wanted it working. We still have a few hiccups where we're still working with some, some coding and some groupings for teachers who are maybe co-teachers or something like that. But I think it will get better over time. Um, but we're way ahead of where we were last year. So I'm very excited about sharing that information with you. Um, and then um, we're starting to move more towards using Schoology as a, a resource for teachers because we have a new platform called Edmodify. And what Edmodify does is it pulls 504, special education, and long-term EL information to one place for a teacher who may not be their case carrier but will be instructing those teachers and they'll see their accommodations. They'll see um, teaching tips for them. They might see their um, MTSS plan, but it's all in one place. So we're slowly putting that in right now. Again, we, we always have hiccups on that kind of stuff, but it's coming along um, and we're making a lot of progress on it. So we're, we're seeing some things like that with our data leveraging that, that kind of information that teachers will be, have better access to data so they can make educational decisions, which is the whole point of leveraging this stuff. Um, but we still have work to do. So in year two, we're going to continue reviewing um, our technology resources. Um, we're going to continue our data audits. Um, we're going to, uh, sorry, I'm on the wrong slide there. Um, our staff train, we're going we're gonna to look at new and exciting products that are coming up on the horizon. Uh, AI is going to be a game changer in some of our, um, our homemade tests or our school-based tests for teachers to do um, assessments for kids. We're really excited about that, but it's still, you know, it's a little ways away still, but we're, we've seen some demos and there's some really, really fun stuff out there. Um, we're going to start eliminating some of our out, outdated or low-use resources, and Steve and I have been taking the lead on looking at what are our usage data on some of the, the platforms that we have. If no one's using it, let's move that away and move to some of these better platforms. And then um, we're, the big thing in all of this is if you have this new technology but staff doesn't know how to use it, it's, it's not really a good technology. So we're spending more and more time looking at different ways to teach staff. Not just like a one-shot, three-hour webinar, you know, you go and then you forget half of it by the time you get home. We're trying to do like little one-pagers. We're sending out, um, you know, information tips and tricks. Um, we're adding little pages on our intranet. Um, so we're trying to make resources for staff so that they'll use the, the tools um, um, effectively. And then the big thing is we're going to hopefully within the next uh, six months or so get some parent ed education out there. And I know the high school started this last year with how IB and the how um, parents access that data on their websites. We want to do it across the board. So we're going to look at that. PowerSchool has a, a new tool coming that's going to be released in December well, that will kind of sync all of our platforms together, our parent tools together. And so there'll be a one-stop stop, one stop shop for all parents to go and see all of their data. So we're very excited about that. I always let the beta testing go through before we jump on board, um, but we're going to see how the beta testing goes and hopefully look at look for that maybe in the spring or early next um, school year. So very exciting stuff on the on the horizon as far as data. So that is um, what we're doing in our office as far as data access. But I also know that the main thing you're here to see is the purpose too, which is looking at the uh, updates from the family feedback or from from our data, the data sets from our family feedback, our IB data points our student demonstrated data points, our state data points, and finally uh, other data points. I just call it, that's kind of like a catch-all of something I might have missed. Um, wanted to just remind everybody back in the spring we did have the K-12 
presentation by, um, and they went over over the results of the parent survey. Um, we, we had some good things and we had some lessons that we could learn and move forward on. I just want to highlight a couple that I thought were particularly good. We had 90% uh, 90, 90 of parents expressed that overall they feel like their child's school is excellent and good. I think we're going to see that 90% a lot tonight. You're going to see that in many of our data points, 90%, right around 90%, which is good. I think that's a good, good goal to reach for. Uh, the next one, 88%, close to 90. Uh, parents, guardians strongly agree um, that there's an adult in school to whom a student can go to. And I feel like that's very important. I have a teenager myself and uh, you know he's struggling sometimes and it's nice for him to be able to go to somebody and just chat. So I think that's a really important data point. Um, and then 90% of parents and guardians strongly agree uh, that staff members and families treat each other with respect. And I think that's just something uh, we should always have. We do have some opportunities for growth. Um, safety and behavior had the lowest percentage of overall favorability, and I already know that there's a number of things that we've started working on, um, including some, uh, some videos for staff, some signage around the buildings. So we've already started addressing that one. And the second one I found very interesting is that while there was a great understanding of families being familiar with students' participation in IB, many didn't understand the, the tracks that went, went along with that. So while we had 80% strongly agree, 50%, only 50% understood the track. And so you could say, well, you know, it's just our elementary kids not knowing that. But I think we thought it was important that we do address that. And so you've probably already seen in our morning announcements, there's an IB focus uh, or highlight every week, um, which has a lot of that information. And we're starting to try to hit that at younger grades as well. Because at the end of the day, every student's an IB student in the district. So it's good for, we want to try to have as many people understanding that um, that is the case. Um, wanted to mention that we are going to, we're, we've finished two years now of our surveys. So the first year, if you remember, we did staff and students. Uh, last year we did parents. So we're going to flip back to year, year one. So it's our third year, but we will have um, parents, uh, excuse me, uh, staff and students again this spring. Uh, will be given the K-12 survey, and we've already started working with them. It'll be um, we're going to try to use as many as the same questions as before, so we can benchmark them. That was the the, the point of having this, the questions similar. Um, we'll probably tweak a, a little just because of um, the way um, you know language might have changed, or there might be be a couple questions we might throw out based on what K-12 recommends. Um, but we have already started that process working with them and um, we're looking to have it I think in April and right around spring break is usually when we do it. So we'll, we'll attempt to have that again um, at about that same time. Okay, um, moving on to the next one. I'm going to get a hang of this. By the end of the night I'll have both just kind of working here really well. Um, Alright, there we go. <laughs> um, as a reminder, we won 10 continuum divisions in the United States, um, and all student, as I mentioned, all students participate in IB uh, according to whatever grade level they are on, pre-K through 12. Um, and so it's important for us to kind of spend some time talking about those data points. Um, as a reminder, um, pre-K to grade 5 are a primary year. Uh, grades 6 through 10 are uh, MYP or middle years program and grades 11 and 12 are diploma candidates and we have the new career related program which we'll talk about a little later on in one of our data points. 
I want to stress that all high school students take at least one IB class and are eligible to take other ones if they want. They do not have to go through the diploma process. They don't have to go through the CEP process, but they do all take at least one course, and I think we're very proud of that. Um, before I go further, I wanted to just uh, send a thank out, uh, uh, shout out to Josh Think Singer, uh, Laura Carpell, and Rory, Rory Dippold, who are our great coordinators, our IB coordinators, and they helped me pull a lot of this data together. Um, Carrie Checa, who's now an AP um, at our um, at um, uh, Oak Street, has also helped me a little bit with this information, and, and definitely we can see her footprints on a lot of this um, stuff we're going to talk about tonight. Um, one of the big things that IB is known for is their portfolio learning. So the next few slides will kind of talk about some of the things we're doing in that area. Um, at Mount Daniels, they started um, in kindergarten, and they're kind of uh, showing their conceptual understanding and growth through their, some PYP portfolios where they're collecting various tasks. Um, and they're trying to model that at Oak Street as well. So it's something that was started, and we're kind of building on it. Um, if you guys have had a chance to see the Oak Street third grade um, projects, they're phenomenal. Um, definitely check those out if you have a chance in the spring. I really enjoy going to see what they've all learned. The kids are just so excited about them. Um, and so teachers are exploring how to implement a similar portfolio uh, situation in, in fifth grade as they finish up um, at Oak Street. And then, of course, there's the PYP exhibition project. Um, and this is kind of that culminating project where they get to explore something of interest to them. They, they, they document it, and then they share their, their um, understanding. And I remember talking to a scientist once with my daughter, and I said, what, what, what should my daughter be doing as she's getting ready to, to go to college? And she said, you know what? You need to learn how to write, and you need to learn how to present, because you could be the best scientist in the world, and if you can't present it, it's, it's a problem. And so it's really great to see that we're already doing that at, at fifth grade here. So we're present, they're presenting their findings. Um, the foundation for this starts at pre-K. Uh, they're working through some of these skill sets, some of these research, research sets. Uh, and then as they go through uh, Mount Daniels and, and then Oak Street and complete that in fifth grade, um, and they, they all present. And you can see there's 100% class participation. Um, last year, all eight classes did it. There were 52 classes um, last year, or 52 groups last year of interested um, students. And then what's really cool is that the community sends 52 mentors out there to help. And I'm guessing that some of you have been mentors. I could be wrong, but I'm guessing some of you some were involved with that. There you go. There, I think I know there's some on this end as well. So I think it's a really, really cool project. Um, I always enjoy going to the website when it's done because the kids will throw them up there, and they're all very different. You know, some are streamlined, and others have lots of pictures on it. So it's really fun to visit that. And I have a link here. I also have a link uh, at the end of this. Uh, there's kind of an appendix to this where you can go and click on that link if you want to go check out some of the, the projects they've done. Um, moving on to MYP, uh, I'm remember this is sixth through 10th grade and they have two projects that they will do. Um, and what this is encouraging is um, to partic uh, participate in a sustained self-directed inquiry with a global, uh, global context uh, to generate creative new insight and develop deeper understanding through uh, in-depth investigation demonstrate skills, attitudes, knowledge required to complete a project over an extended period of time, communicate effectively, demonstrate responsibility through action, and then appreciate the process of learning and take pride in their accomplishments. Uh, Dr. Bates probably has a similar experience in his doctoral program um, where a lot of these things probably showed up. Um, 
The first one is, uh, happens in eighth grade, MYP, uh, the MYP Community Project, which is a research and service project that focuses on community service, encourages students to explore the responsibility as global citizens to implement services as action and projects. Again, 100% participation, everyone was involved. Um, the number of the eighth grade classes was 80. And then there were stu student achievement awards that are given for, the, for the, those that are seen as really high performing, and there were 40 students who received that this year. The MYP personal project um, is, is a 10th grade project, um, and in their final year um, of the MYP, they explore an area of personal interest over an extended period of time. Um, this provides opportunity for students to consolidate their learning and develop important skills they'll need in both further education and life beyond the classroom. Um, we had 99% participation in this, um, 14 um, 10th grade class, stable classes, and then there were 57 IB learner profiles. And again, I think we've all visited these. They're really amazing to see what students come up with. Um, some of the ideas are absolutely amazing, uh, artistic, musical. Um, community service. Um, so I just think it shows the creativity and, and um, ingenuity of a lot of the students. And then once they kind of get pride behind it, it, it just really, their work really shows um, at a high level of excellence. Um, we wanted to start giving some data points. So last year we started by giving you just some overall information, and now we've kind of put it in a chart so you can see kind of a two-year comparison. And we'll continue to do this over time. We'll start adding another column to the right each year. Um, so diploma candidates, uh, we had 57 in 2021-22, and we had 52 this year, but you can see our, our diplomas received percentage went up slightly. Um, the average score range, we kind of put that scale in there for you. Um, we wanted to show broad access. We have a number of students taking exams even if they're not doing the diploma. Uh, we had 280 in 2021-22 and then 255 last year. That's, that's a lot of students who are trying it. Um, so for those rising seniors, so we had last year 56 students who are going to be candidates. Um, this year we have 65. So you can see there's a slight uptick there. So we're excited about that. And then first-year candidates who are those rising juniors, um, we had 75 in 2021 and then 76 in 22-23. Um, and as I mentioned last year, or excuse me, this year we started a CP program. Uh, so obviously we have no data on that last year, but we did want to point out that we have 17 students who are on that pathway this year. Um, but there are also 70 on a pathway who will decide at the end of 10th grade if they want to continue. So I think for a first-year program, that's really some high numbers. Um, and we're really excited about having this, um, this new, um, new program involved. And really the story we're kind of seeing here is that every, every, every student, when they're a senior, has done a lot IB. They've done presentations. They've all taken an IB class, and most, if not all of them, have taken an IB exam. Um, so I think that kind of shows the power that the IB is having here in our district. Um, we wanted to show a few other data points here. 824 exams completed by students in 37 subjects. Um, at least one student in 15 subjects earned the highest possible grade of seven. So we're, having some, we're seeing some excellence there. Um, student, students exceeded global averages in 13 subjects. Um, our, and then our IB English for juniors and seniors consisted of our English HL literature and English SL language and lit, 
and between the two subjects, we had 173 students participate in testing with a pass rate of 95% in one and 92% in another, which I think is outstanding. Um, and that's over that 90% I had mentioned earlier. So I think we should feel really good about that. We also had some exciting news for individual students. Uh, we had um, two students who won um, IB Mid-Atlantic Student Excellent Awards. Um, the only MYP Student Excellent Award winner was an FCC uh, PS student. And then the, uh, we had uh, an FCCPS student earn one of the two PYP Student Excellence Awards. Um, so we just wanted to mention that, that that's very exciting to have those two students um, here in our district. I just want to say I'm pretty sure Preston Liu is going to be the president someday, who was the young man in the picture up there. Um, we wanted to move ahead to one of my favorite sections, which is the student demonstrated uh, data points. I think numbers tell a lot, but I think actions also speak sometimes louder than words. And um, this year I did it a little differently than last year, and I've included it for your reference in the back again. It's um, in the appendix. Um, Instead of waiting until the fall to collect these data points, I went to schools and staff ahead of time and, and went in June. <laughs> because I knew it was fresh in their minds at that point as they were wrapping up the year. And I said, hey, what are, what are some really cool things that you've done? Uh, I also scoured um, John's uh, morning announcements and, and pulled out some of those really high, cool things that kids are doing. And just it's amazing when you kind of go back and read it. And I, I want to guess it's five or six pages by the end of the time you do this. And that's just bullet points. It's really fun to look at how our students are doing all, they're doing so many different things, athletically, um, musically, um, community service, um, working in, in local government. There's so many really, really cool things that are there. So I, I, I do enjoy this part, I must admit, um, when we kind of talk about that. Um, and you know JTP, uh, they're kind of hard, you know, because what are their kids? Their kids aren't going to work, and you know, you know, the council or something like that. So we we did what we do want to shout out to them uh, that they were 100% on their state indicators for early childhood special education. So that's really exciting for them. Uh, all staff met or exceeded standards on the class observation. So that's that's really good for them as well. Um, Mount Daniels, they had students recognized for participation uh, in EarthWatch, which is an annual program. Um, the, the PYP portfolio highlights student work samples and collections throughout the year. Um, they also went, it went uh, the second grade went to the Wax Museum, where it was an opportunity for students to research and present on influ influential people. Uh, and they're very excited about their staff development opportunities, which ex expand uh, that allow multiple oh, excuse me staff development opportunities expanded to allow multiple training experiences for many staff members. So we're very they're very excited about that over there. Um, their music program also did a tremendous amount of things last year. They, they performed at the community in events like the Halloween Carnival and concerts along with grade level events. Uh, I also know they had the, the high school band come down and do a number of musical events, so I thought that was kind of cool to have their mentors come down, their, their mentors come down uh, for those events. Um, first grade spring sing had 90% of classes performed in class. Uh, and then second grade ukulele day, 90% of, 98% uh, of classes performed. And then their farm, uh, far, fine art nights, 86% uh, of class, uh, kindergarten classes performed. So those are very exciting that students are getting involved in those activities. 
Um, Oak Street had some really interesting things last year. Um, one student was named an ambassador for Global Downstreams Foundation. I know we had a special ceremony for that at one of the board meetings, and, and she's doing a great job. Um, the math Olympiad, and every year I see these, and it seems like every year we get a little better at these sort of things, but the math Olympiad team, was uh, the fifth grade team, was recognized as one of the top teams in the nation. The Word Master Challenge, was, uh, the third grade team, was ranked eighth in the nation for the entire year. So not just one competition, but the entire year. Um, 24 teams competes, uh, competed at the Odyssey of the Mind, and one competed at the World Finals. So it's a reminder, we didn't do Odyssey of the Mind for a couple of years, or, or I don't even know how far back. I, they didn't do it the first two years I was here. La first, they, they brought it back last year, and to have a team go to, to Worlds the first year is, is pretty amazing. A shout out to all those um, parents who volunteered and helped with that, because I know that's a big lift. Um, but the creativity of the students to kind of go and present and put themselves out there, it's just amazing that the first year they're, they're doing so well. And I think the participation numbers were off, off the charts. I mean, we had a large participation number there. Um, and then we had um, one Oak Street student um, collected sports gear for schools in Malawi, which I think is really kind of a cool thing. Uh, actually, it wasn't one. It was, it was the, whole, the whole school collected it. Um, Mayor Allen Henderson wanted us to know that um, Henderson and, and MHS students packed 25,000 meals for local food banks in the Ukraine. That's a big number. Uh, Henderson students were rec recognized for um, commitment to sustainability goals. Uh, eighth graders, an eighth grade student won second prize at C-SPAN's annual student documentary uh, competition. So that, that's amazing that that student went out, shot a documentary, and got second at C-SPAN. Um, Student earned summa cum laude recognition in the Pegasus National Mythology exam. Um, three um, students, uh, mathletes, competed at the MathCon finals in Chicago. And a Henderson tuba player performed at the Kennedy Center. And that's no small feat. And then Meridian. Um, we had United uh, Nations Association of the U.S. 22-23 uh, National Community Service Awards. We had just a number of different awards. We had ambass 13 ambassadors, 29 honors, and 23 merits. Um, the Meridian High School Sapphire Award for, uh, received the Sapphire Award for 4,670 hours invested in community needs. Um, we performed at the Chantilly Jazz Fest and awards, uh, awards and, and got a superior rating. I'm sorry I missed that. That probably would have been an exciting evening. Uh, 26 students earned sustainability scholar recognition. Uh, and the Meridian 10th grade, uh, and a Meridian 10th grader ranked third in the National Debate and Speech Association at the local level. Uh, 24 students with disabilities secured part or full-time paid employment through collaboration with the Virginia Department of Aging and Rehabilitation Services, Northern Virginia Community College, and Community Support Partners. I think that's an amazing number and a great experience, work experience for them. Um, there were, we were nominated, uh, they were nominated for seven copies for the Love Doctor. Um, four students uh, represented FCCPS and Regional Environmental Action Showcase, so they presented their findings. And then the Meridian High School Sire Patrol Club season ended with three teams competing at the gold tier uh, semifinalists. I mean, I need them to come work on my computer. Uh, it was a banner year for our athletics. Um, we have a list of accomplishments that we attached that you can look at later, but some of the highlights were 22-23 uh, boys swimming um, state champions and um, the 20-23 boys um, soccer. And then um, 
that we had an individual Grace champion, um, Grace Crum, the 1600 meter champion um, uh, at the states. Uh, some notable accomp uh, accomplishments were the competition cheer reached uh, the state tournament for the first time in 20 years. It's a great achievement. Golf th team third place finish at VHSL. Uh, and we had numerous uh, individual player recognition. So again, um, the next slide kind of sums it up for me. We have a lot of scholar athletes out there. They're doing high IB work. They're doing great sports work. That's what the whole term scholar athlete is all about. So that's pretty exciting stuff um, to share. Um, we started to add it. We decided to add a new data point this year. Um, we uh, have started coding more and more stuff in PowerSchool, so it gives us the opportunity to do this. So what we'll do is we'll have a list this year, and then next year we'll kind of have that chart again, like we had um, on some of our earlier slides. But I'll just point out a couple. Um, we had 78 students in National Honor Society. If you think our class is 208, to have 78 is, is you know, you're looking, you're you're moving about a third to to half. You're almost there. Um, the CELA by literacy, 61 students had that. Again, that's about a third of our students are, are having a by literacy uh, accomplishment. Um, I, I won't read all of these, but they're they're all you know they're all high honors. Um, I did add an uh, addendum down there, so if you want to look up what some of these are, um, you have a list of those in the back. And I hope the community goes and looks at what fun of these are. I mean, students are working really hard to in a diff lot of different areas to try to get themselves better at languages or um, CTE skills or French or or all of these different uh, scholar things that they're looking at. Um, I got a couple of division things that I thought were really fun and we should point out. If, if you weren't at Little Feet meet this year, it was just a blast. It was a little hot, but to see those kids, how excited they are about you know doing all these different sporting events and to, to see the community come together, that, that was a great event. And there were so many high school students and I think even middle school students out there helping out and just enjoying the day with those kids. I thought it was great. Um, we have more than 200 businesses and education partners from the business and nonprofit sphere supporting our schools, which I think is awesome. Um, eight community partnership recognition awards presented. Um, we had niche, and we have a new niche uh, this year. And then, of course, you've all heard that we're a great place to work. Um, so overall, the students are engaged in project-based learning, community experience, and a variety of arts, sports, and extracurricular activities. Uh, academic community involvement and athletic excellence is demonstrated by the data that was short, uh, shared. And then I, I just think the biggest thing is IB is deeply rooted in a lot of this, um, be it the community service or the, the uh, IB itself. So I think it's really great. Opportunities for growth. We can continue to explore uh, activities in the community for all students, make sure all students are participating and being helped out. Uh, explore data points to ensure that all students are experiencing a variety of opportunities, both academic and non-academic. And with that being said, we'll take a brief break. I don't know if we're on time, I'm behind time, um, but we, we can definitely take some questions here and uh, before we move on to the data pieces. Thank you so much, that was terrific. I mean, just great news. Does anyone have any questions or comments? Dr. DeMicto, is it, okay. Thank you very much. I, I, it's lovely to see the achievements of everyone. I just wanted to chime in on the um, hopefully growing awareness in the community of IB. I find I go to a lot of how does IB work things and I talk to parents at each one of those and they say, well, if I keep going to these, 
I will finally understand how IB works. So I think the more information sessions we do, the better. Yeah, to that point, uh, one of the things, that, and I know that I've spoken with Dr. Noonan about this before, um, and I know Dr. Noonan, um, we were working on that. Um, but specifically, I know there's always some confusion about um, math from uh, Tom, from sorry, from Oak Street to MEH, and if people and if students are going in at grade level math, and that um, they need to be on a on a I guess a one grade level ahead track. But I know there's different pathways, so um, I think that's one of the things. There's still some confusion out there. So you know, if we're doing things in morning announcements, or maybe, and I know I think it is on the website somewhere, but maybe people aren't aware of it. So maybe we could one day just do a quick FAQ or something. Sure, we, um, could, we could also highlight it in one of our upcoming sessions, but I want to make sure everybody understands right, the right. board and the community that right. even if you leave Oak Street on at a grade level mathematics level, you can still access right. the IB diploma. There is a pathway for everyone. So right, right. Uh, we'll work with families and work with kids to help anyone who wants the IB diploma to, to get it. Right, thank you. And just to add to that, I, I, I'm pretty sure this Mr. McAdam explained this you can even exit Mary Ellen Helnerson Middle on grade level math, and you can still achieve the IB diploma. They have two options. Mr. McAdam explained it to us, so it, it's it's not as early as right. I think some of the community imagines. That it's right. actually much later. You can get into high school, which is great. That's right. That's right. And and there's no need to take algebra at Jesse Thackeray to get to the IB diploma, which is good. <laughs> yes. Sort of. Just kidding. Tongue in cheek, of course. But um, no, it, it it really is accessible even if you get to high school with grade level math. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah. So I think I I think those pathways are out there. I think just maybe packaging it or, or somehow that would be great. Uh, any other questions or yes, Ms. Tice. Uh, yes. Thank you so much. I just I love hearing all the diverse ways that our, our kids are succeeding and having all these great opportunities. Um, I'm also really happy to hear about the portfolio. Um, through the PYP coming back. Um, I know my older two didn't actually just was looking at their portfolio last week, portfolios last week randomly, but um, they went away for a while. Was that purely a COVID um, situation? And they're back at Mount Daniel and we're looking to getting them I would have Oak to look. Street? I would Is have that... to look in that, to that for you. Okay. Um, I know they weren't there my, my first year, so that probably went away because of COVID. Um, I think the, because there's a project in fifth grade, I think they kind of moved away from the portfolio, but they also see a value to that now. So I think they are starting to look at exploring how that's going to look. Yeah. Um, I think it's a good thing. I know it's a tremendous amount of work on the teachers, so I understand if their if if their efforts are, are put in other directions. But I do think there's there's a tr there's a huge value for them to be able to see fully start to finish their entire PYP experience, all encapsulated, ideally even in one portfolio. I know transferring them from one school to the next and storing them and all of that can be a headache. So whatever they, they figure out, I trust that they'll, but I just wanted to put in a vote for that. I think it would be fantastic if they can make it work. Um, I also just had some questions to make sure that I'm understanding the numbers right on, um, on slide 17 with the IB data. Um, when it says that the second, so in 2021 to 2022, and it says the second year candidate, so that was, kids who were ending their junior year there were 56 but then the next year there's 52 so does that mean you know, maybe four changed their mind over the summer or am I looking at this wrong yeah that's oh, right okay I just wanted to that makes sense um and then um when you're looking at the average score of I don't fully un I do I think I have a pretty good understanding of IB but I don't understand exactly what it takes to get across the finish line and they're looking at these average scores um so 
is there a, a line, they ha a, a score they have to get to actually receive the diploma on that one to seven? So I think the way, or if you can take it if you want. No, I was just going to say it's actually not the score on an individual test that gets you across mm -hmm. the line. It's actually a combination of multiple tests that get you across the line, and you need a three, four, five, six, or seven. A three, four, and three, four, five, five six, six, or, or seven, seven on individual tests, but it is a combination of multiple tests that get you to that diploma. Got it. So if you get less than a three on one of the yeah. tests, are you not? Uh, assuming that it's a threshold test, okay. yes. So it, it taken into account is also the extended essay. Sure. And I think community right. service. And so project. So yep. it's like a portfolio. The, the tests are just one aspect right. of so it. So is, is the number on here of how many kids ending their senior year did all the things but then didn't Correct. meet the mark? Is that data on here? Well, if you look at um, diploma candidates to diploma received, oh, so, so that's eighty, so eighty-one percent do all all the things and meet correct. the mark. Okay, correct. Right, thank you. And then this last year, we actually had a higher percentage that met the mark, but we had fewer fewer candidates. And this coming year, um, we have seventy plus candidates that are coming through. Wow. So we'll see how that. And, and part of that is um, is as I'm sure those of us with kids on the, in the diploma program know that Mr. Singer is trying to get, my son being one of them, trying to get the students to have their rough drafts due much earlier because that's usually what the stumbling block is, is that they, go, they procrastinate, and then in the end they're like, forget it, I'm not gonna do the extended essay. So what they're trying to do is, um, and looking at both my oldest and now my senior, my oldest finished it at the eleventh hour, and now my seniors work on it now. So, so that so that is part of it is trying to get these get the students to get that thing done early senior year, not waiting until spring of senior year. Can I clarify what I said? Sure. I said three. Three is on a an SL course is passing. A four on an HL course is passing. Got it. So okay. as you move into the higher levels, you ha should have more higher. mastery. Got it. Okay. Um, and then actually one other question. This is so helpful. Um, the 280 and the 255 of students who took at least so that only juniors and seniors are eligible for IB courses, right? We have some 10th graders that are also taking IB courses. Oh, yeah. okay. And so that is of that number 280 or 255. That's all three grades in, kids that, that, year. in that school year taking. Correct. Okay. All right. Thank you. But I think the big, the big takeaway I hope that you have is that every student accesses the IB program. IB the diploma program coursework somewhere in their high school experience. And whether they got a three or a four or a one or a two, there's significant research out there that suggests that taking the more rigorous course versus not taking it and scoring lower versus taking a standard level course and scoring higher is, is far better to take the more rigorous course. So the fact that every single kid that walks across the stage has taken an IB course and the associated test is pretty amazing. So can you say it again? So everyone who graduates has taken? Has taken at least one, one. IB course. And that's because it's English, right? Is English yeah. is the one. All of our, every, all our 11, 12 English classes correct. are IB. And that's then a great. lot of our kids will also take, you know, film study or sure. something that they're really interested in right. and maybe not do the full diploma. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you. Any other questions or comments? I had uh, two quick, I guess one question, one comment. Um, this is, I'm sorry, this is pretty school specific and, and it might be um, something that Dr. Bates or actually maybe someone at Mary Ellen Henderson could speak to at some other point, but 
Uh, I know that last year, well, not that last year, over the years, we've had um, complaints, concerns from parents, because you're talking about you know, students, act, I'm sorry, parents accessing their students' achievements and grades and data and all that. Um, and so one of the things I think that's been a challenge at MEH is the standards-based grading and how that coincides with power school or how it doesn't. Um, and so I know that in the years past, there's been um, complaints from parents and not understanding and, you know, pointing it up on power school or whatever. And so I didn't know if, I haven't heard much. I don't know, Kathleen, you or Ms. Tice, you might, have you heard much? So maybe they've got that. Do you know, Dr. Noonan, if they've kind of figured that out? I think we've sort of figured it out. Okay. Yeah. And okay, um, I, I do know that having just had an eighth grader <laughs> who's now an, a ninth grader, um, we, and obviously I might know a little bit more than the average bear on this kind of stuff, but <laughs> well, let's I, hope. Was, I was able to sort of navigate it pretty easily okay, and, good. and understand what my student's grade was. Okay, good. Great. Thanks. And so I'll just add to that, that Rory yeah. sent out a really good parent sheet okay. explaining that and every year they're making it better okay, so my good. guess is they'll send that out at some point this fall great that was, great. Just, that was my next question because as a sixth grade parent I might, i'm not paying as close attention since i've been through it twice but right. I, i'm not aware of there being a lot of training for parents who are new to henderson this year yet but that's coming you think i would believe so okay, okay. <laughs> thank you uh and then the last piece i i just want to say i really liked the data point about the uh, our students with disabilities and going on to jobs. That's I don't remember if that was in last year's report, but I thought that was. It was not. It was an additional. Yeah, that's. I thought that was terrific. It's just well done, and you know what a great collaboration between our system and all the different um, social service agencies and things. So, and I guess local universities too. That's terrific. Uh, any other questions or comments? Okay, I think whoever is. I'm next. Okay. <laughs> All right, moving on to our case data points. Um, so we always start with the, the behind the scenes stuff. And these are all things that uh, a lot of us uh, over here at CEO have to fill out. These are just different kind of reports. And uh, Kristen, you work on a number of these, and I work on a number of these. and. Um, these are just things that we have to file out, fill out for the state every year and say, yeah, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. Um, I think Chair Downs has signed off on a number of these. Um, and so we just, just wanted to point out that there are a lot of things behind the scenes that are happening. And that These are, again, not very exciting data points, but things that we have to do that show that we're doing a really good job. Okay, so let's move on to our SOL data. So as a reminder, um, the data, we could, there's a number of data sets from the state, the Virginia Assessment Program, there's the WIDA, which is the language assessment, and then there's the PAL, so we'll, we'll give you some PALS data later on. Um, next slide. Um, for Virginia Assessment Program, there's federal accountability, which is math, reading, and science in elementary, middle, and high school, so they have to test at least once in each of those. Um, the math and the reading is done every grade, third through eighth. Um, and science is done once uh, in elementary, it's done in fifth. Um, in uh, middle school, it's done in eighth. And then in high school, you have to take one reading SOL and you have to take um, one science SOL. And then there's a history one that needs to be taken, but that can, that's taken in our district, that's taken in uh, eighth grade. So by the time they finish ninth grade, students have met their federal accountability requirement and they're too short of our state requirement. And uh, what we have, to, what students have to do is they need to take the SOLs in high school, that end of course test, 
and verify their credit. So they take a class, they take the associated SOL, and when they pass it, they verify their credit. And so to verify it, they need a math, a reading, a writing, a science, and history. So you see some overlap there. But again, our goal as a district is to try to have as many students at the end of ninth grade having their reading, math, and science out of the way. Excuse me, their, uh, their science, uh, well, I get looking in. Math, history, and science done, and then in 11th grade, they take their reading and writing. There are some And, and the vast majority have taken the, the math in middle school. But they have to sit again in high school. So that so it all there's it's kind of a, a web here that has to happen. So, but I like to share this every year so people know that there's a certain required ones that they have to take. So even if they pass a test in eighth grade, like an algebra one, they still have to sit in ninth grade for federal accountability. So there's it's kind of a a, a double thing here. Um, one thing that I am going to note is that the um, the the writing is changing this year. Um, they're going to they're going to eliminate the writing SOL in eighth grade, and they're going to do something called a mixed item type, um, where the reading and the writing will be combined together. Um, this will be the first year they do it. It will be for first, fifth and eighth grade. We're kind of curious to see how it's going to turn out. Uh, high school will need to do it as well, but they'll still need to take the writing assessment as well. So again, something new next, this coming year. We'll see how it turns out, and I think we'll do great on it because those are really strengths for us anyway. Um, accreditation, um, we're fully accredited again, um, as usual. Um, we, we continue to make uh, gains uh, in our gap groups. The one area we were tad concerned about uh, on the next slide is that we have a yellow in chronic absenteeism. And we decided to go ahead and share some of those details with you uh, on the next slide. So we were, if you look in 2018-19, we were at 8%. Um, 2021, 22 is uh, 6%, and then last year we kind of jumped up um, to 15.6%. And it could be things like students were ill, um, you know, parents didn't send them for whatever reason. Um, those are things that we're targeting, things we're looking at, we're trying trying to figure out how to make sure all students are coming to school. But that was our one area that was a level two. Uh, and so that's something that kind of raised our eyebrows when we saw it, and we'll, we'll definitely take a look at, at why that is happening. Um, now, for SOLs, um, we're going to be looking, for the most part, at adjusted rates. So there's certain coding that happens, and uh, the SOL pass rate includes uh, SOL exams. Uh, for students who do not pass the SOL exams, if they show growth, they count as a pass. And then also those students taking the, the VAP, or Virginia Alternate Assessment Program, if they pass, that counts towards our rate as well. We don't report out our VAP scores in this presentation because our numbers are just way too small. Um, and again, we've talked a lot about, you know, we don't want to have numbers that are too small. Um, but we did do very well for the small number of kids who did it. We did very well on it this year. So we're really excited about um, our, our VAP students performing at a high level. Um, so on our next slide, um, I'm sure you've all seen our pass rate. Um, we did very well. If you look at the state there, we. I, I put uh, the pass rate plus in the brackets the how far we're above the state. So all of our uh, numbers are closing in on 90%. Uh, the one thing I did want to mention was our science, which you'll see down there is 85. This year was the first year testing new standards. Um, and typically the first year of a new standard, you see a little dip only because the uh, concentration of where we're teaching, the, that, that crosswalk between the old standards and the new standards is just starting to be taught. 
And so that's something that we're well aware of, and I'm, I'm sure that number will, will jump back up. Um, uh, we wanted to give you the longitudinal data so you can kind of see where we are, and we're, we're making progress. We're getting close to that 2018-19 number again. Um, we've made progress over last year, or even in a number of our areas, um, the science and history, and uh, we're, we're a little below. So those, again, are things that we need to, to take a look at. Um, and again, the caveat on the science is it's a new benchmark standard. So we just need to be aware that that typically shows a little dip on the first year of the new SLO assessment. Um, the next slide is we, this is something that was asked for last year and so we added it. Um, you guys wanted to know, uh, and I think the community wanted to know what our past advance rates are. And, and when you look at it, we can kind of see it slowly inching up. Every year it goes up a tad. Um, you can see in almost every area except for science uh, and history, it, it dipped a little bit on our past advance, but for the core, math, reading, and writing, those all are, are up. Um, I think it's a incredibly significant that for writing, we have 52% of our students at past advanced, which is amazing. Uh, and I think it shows to, with IB having a very strong writing focus, presentation focus, I think that's something that just really needs to be um, highlighted there, and I wanted to point that out. Um, reading is incredibly strong as well. We're slowly inching up on that. Um, we, we wanted to just kind of put our state rank, so we went through and looked at which where we were. Um, we're tied for one on our, our core three again, math, reading, and writing. Um, science, we're at number three, and history, we're at number two. Um, I did have a couple interesting notes that um, our advanced pass is number one for reading, and um, I think that's really exciting. Um, I got a few other notes here. Uh, advanced pass for writing was also number one in the state, obviously. Um, and even though our our, um, our science was a little below and our history was a little below, we're still not that far from being being top. So for science, we were only four points from being number one, and in history, we were only two points from being number one. So although those seem like little blips for us, um, we're still not that far off of being the top in the state. And so those are things we can work work toward um, next year. Um, for the next few slides, we wanted to do the gap groups for you again. And so I, I gave you the slide last year and I wanna just reiterate it. And, and William and I feel pretty strongly about this, that we just need to be aware that a lot of our gap groups have small numbers. And so, um, on a given year, those numbers could fluctuate by little or a lot, and that's gonna impact the number a lot. So we just need to kind of keep that uh, in mind. So for ex the example I always give, if you have 50 out of 100 pass rates, um, uh, 50 out of 100 pass, your pass rate's 50%. If 20 of those students leave FCC and only 10 come in, and it's 50 and 90, our pass rate goes up, but we still have the same number of students passing. So we just need to be cautious when we look at these numbers. They're great data points to look at. Obviously, we know who those individual students are, um, but we just, again, want to be really careful about the interpretation and, and making sure how we're looking at those and, and realizing those our numbers are small in a lot of these gap groups. Um, so in the chart, in the next five slides, we went ahead and put green means progress and yellow means kind of a step back or a regression and advanced pass and pass only. I didn't do it for all of them because the other two are kind of obvious. Um, so we put it for advanced pass and pass. So the first one is reading. Um, and what I really kind of like there is if you look down at 22, 23, there's a lot of green. 
there's a lot of green in our path in our gap groups um, so we're seeing progress in a lot of our gap groups um, we're seeing improvements in the pass rate and um, in our advanced pass um, uh, if you look at economically disadvantaged you can see that kind of stayed stagnant which the others in the numbers but um, that's a, that's a pretty small group for us but a lot of greens so I'm pretty I was pretty excited to see that and our next area is writing um, we do have some hiccups there. We have some yellows, um, but they're, they're slight drops. I don't think they're anything to be overly worried about, but I think they're things that we need to examine why, why those maybe dropped a little bit. Um, we'll talk a little bit about our English language population when we get to those slides, um, and I think that'll explain a little bit there. Um, but again, I think these are um, some promising greens and then some, some little yellows that we probably need to take a look at. Um, mathematics, again, a lot of greens. A lot of greens down at the bottom. Um, we need to look at that pass rate for our black population and really focus on those. Again, we know who those students are. We need to make sure they're they're getting the supports they need. Um, but but there's grew, a but we grew. But I just would point out we dropped in the pass rate from 65% to 56%, but we gained in the advance from 4% to 11%. So yeah. that accounts for probably some of it. Yeah. So it's it's those are all those are um, good data points to look at. Um, science. Um, again, this is a, a reminder that this is the new science standard, so we are seeing some yellows down there, um, and I think some of that will we'll get a better look next year to see how we're progressing on those. Um, and then finally, history. Um, there's a number of yellows there. Um, that's something we'll have to look at. I mean, it's something that I'm not sure I can explain. We'll have to talk with our curriculum people to kind of say why are we struggling a little bit um, with a lot of our groups there. Um, but I know that, that William and his team is working really hard on that um, to see why, why that we're, we're kind of struggling a little in the history area. Um, Peter, do you have anything to add on this other slides? No. Nope. You're good? Okay. All right, so this was a kind of a cool idea, and I, I give this uh, Dr. Anderson, Dr. Gould for, for this one here. Um, they asked if we took, if we could take all of our students. Now, I want to I want to preface this by saying we're looking before we were looking at state adjusted data. So there's coding that there's certain things that are adjusted. This we're looking at straight raw data. So I basically pulled our data files down from our previous years, starting in 2021, and we went through 2021 through 2023. Uh, and we basically put them on a scale and then broke them into quarters. And we wanted to see where our groups were landing, where our quarter groups were landing score-wise. Uh, and I, I gotta be honest, I was really pleasantly surprised and, and happy to see that if you look on at 2022-23, I added some green blocks there. Um, our highest, our groups are moving up. So for example, uh, for math, uh, 508 to 600 is our highest quartile we had, or the, the, the highest. It started at 508, where the year before it started at 401. And if you go back to 2020, 2021, it was 486. So that highest group is all in advanced pass, which is great. That's where we, we really want to see as many kids in advanced pass as possible. And you can even see some in quarter in, the, in group three. There's some advanced passes in there, 517. Um, so there's some really good things that came out of this data, so thanks for that advice. Um, I, I got to lose, use a lot of green on that. Um, the other ones are we're, we're you know we're closed for for science. It's again I think it's the 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 year of the new standard, so it's 486 before it's 495. 
um, and for history, it dropped a little bit, 523 to 514. So again, these are really kind of cool things to look at. Um, I, I will caveat to that the low score on a lot of these, it's, it's one or two students who maybe come in and, and didn't have a good day or something happened. And I think those are one-offs. The number of students in the two and three hundreds is, is slowly dropping because you can see 431 is the bottom or the top of quarter one and look at it's 411 over on 2020 and 2021. So you can see that our it's getting harder and harder for a student to get in this those other groups, those higher groups. So I thought this was a really interesting idea and, and thanks for that. And uh, you guys are happy. You know, you guys can give a presentation on it uh, during the question time. So thanks for that. Um, let's move on to WIDA. So um, thanks to Jen Santiago for um, helping share, set up some of these slides. Um, and we're, again, we're seeing um, some interesting data for them. Uh, and she sent me some notes along, so I want to make sure I'm reading those right, or, or at least giving you the, the proper information on it. Um, it was kind of an interesting year. Uh, we can definitely see some changes in our growth and exit rates um, on this slide. Um, which are expected. We, we expect to see growth. We expect to see uh, exit rate. Um, but she wanted me to stress that the last year was atypical because we were having a, a steady increase of enrollment of students very new to English throughout the entire school year. And I think that's part of the reason our numbers are kind of creeping up, that we're, we're having a lot of new students. Um, this means that many students did not have two years of data to compare, so they automatically are identified as NA, which aren't considered in the growth category. So that probably hurt us a little bit compared to years past. Um, with most um, multilingual students exiting services in Oak Street, our students enrolled in the middle school are either new to English, are duly identified students, or are long-term multilingual students, uh, all which take a longer path to uh, language acquisition. So that's why we were seeing maybe a little drop at the middle school they were seeing a lot of new students this year as opposed to students had kind of worked their way through our system and, and shown progress. Um, so she wanted to make sure that um, we shared that information with you. Um, but, but we're seeing some really good growth and exit rates in there, so it's, it's all good. Um, moving along to our next, um, our next assessment, which is the, the PALS. Um, I wanted to remind everybody of uh, where our growth areas are. So if you look at that, there are a lot of milestones in first grade um, for reading. Um, and so we always talked about how COVID impacted those students who had it. But um, I'm pleasantly, I'm, I'm really excited to actually report. We did really, really well um, in our PALS data. Um, we are getting very close, if not surpassing what we did in 2019 in some areas. So. Again, kindergarten is at 8%. Um, we were at 5% in 2019. Um, but look at first grade, 11% for both spring 2023 and spring 2019. So we're back to, to pandemic uh, levels there. Uh, and then second grade is 27% um, in 2019 and 10% in 2023. So we've made steady progress as well. Um, why is this important? Is we're getting our foundational skills better and better every year, uh, and so as they move forward through our process, uh, through our programs, we're, we're seeing a lot of progress in in this assessment data. Um, so I think this is really exciting news. Um, do we have students we need to work with? Absolutely, and we'll continue to work with them. But I think again, this is a, a good good point to celebrate with our, our kindergarten, first, and second grade staffs 
um, on how they're focused on, on our pre-reading and, and readiness skills for reading. Um, we added this one on. Um, we did get a state report on this, and it's kind of a one-pager, so there's not a whole lot of information I can give you. But what I did want to share with you that if you look at um, the national average and the state averages, we have 50% of our students scoring above that in, in um, both on the total score, um, the ERW, and the math. Um, and the, the reason I know that is because if you look at, for example, the state average for um, the the ERW, it's 572, and we have 50% of our kids in the 600 to 800. Um, so these are good data points to, to kind of look at. Um, not all students take this. Um, and we'll, I, I kind of have to figure out a better way to kind of present this to you guys so we can figure out a way to compare this over years and stuff like that. So, um, again, a new data point for us, something we can look at over time and, and figure out a way to kind of quantify it in a better manner. But, again, good news because I think we're, we're majority of our students are above average. A uh, few other things we wanted to mention here. We just recently found out um, that we had one student recognized for a National uh, African American Recognition Award. We had three students who had a National Hispanic Recognition Award, and we had five students um, who uh, earned uh, National Merit Scholarship, or our National Merit Semi-Scholarship, sorry, National Merit Scholarship Semi-Final, say that five times fast, uh, I absolutely can't. Uh, and again, that's based on last year's testing. So those are all good data points to look at. Um, and it's the second year we've had students have the National African American and the Hispanic Awards, so we're, we're pretty excited about that. And I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Bates to bring us home. Thank you, Dr. Weilerman. So if we look at our highlights from that uh, deep dive into all of the assessment data that, that Dr. Weilerman shared with us, the first thing is we are fully accredited in all of our schools, and so that's something uh, we're proud of. We're also nearing those pre-pandemic um, SOL scores in the five tested areas with a 90% across the board, we, uh, we, we just believe that that is a, a solid benchmark that we need to look at across the division to, um, to meet. We're um, also within the top three state rankings in all of the subject areas, as uh, Peter had pointed out. And we um, had three tested c categories where we were actually number one. And interesting and important to point out is that when you look at the percentage of our students who scored in the past advanced um, range in some of those areas where we weren't actually rated as number one we still had a higher percentage of students and i can't remember if you pointed that out uh, dr weilman but we still had a higher percentage of students uh, that had tested in that past advanced range we're making positive movement in our past rates and our past advanced rates in our gap groups. And um, we've experienced gains with our special ed population, with our ESOL population, and our students uh, living in poverty. And then as Dr. Weilman pointed out, when we looked at our WIDA scores, specifically at the exit rates at Oak Street, nearly 50% of those students have exited. When we look for opportunities of growth, because we know we have to have to continue to improve, our science and history did experience a slight decrease 
when we compare that to our, our reading, English, and math, which were um, really strong and have, have remained um, strong, and we continue to see um, upticks in, in those areas. Um, if we're going to do this work in, in earnest and really focused on leveling up, focus on intervention practices, focus on closing those gaps, then we have to look at our professional development and training for our teachers. And so we listed a few things there with the differentiation, the intervention, and the cognitive learning challenges, helping teachers be um, better positioned to support students with their needs and, and with their challenges. Because if the teachers aren't equipped to do so, then we can't um, co close those gaps. And then supporting the staff with the data platforms, as Peter mentioned at the very head of the, of the presentation, making sure that our teachers are adequately and appropriately trained and understand how to not just use our data platforms, but also leverage the data once we're able to put it into their hands. Oftentimes you all will, um, well not oftentimes, um, always the board, and we appreciate this about you, you ask us, well, what might we be able to do to support your efforts and to um, help you help students? One thing that we have to point out is that we do have um, a number of positions that were supported with our ESSER funds, and that will expire in 2024. And so um, when we look at some of those key positions, um, we can't help but think as we dig into, well, how are we going to maintain these um, levels of academic excellence and support our students, um, cognitive and academic, but also social, social and emotional um, challenges? Um, we have to think about uh, the positions that we currently have and how we may, may be able to maintain um, those positions. Um, also, when we look at our mathematics and our ELA curriculum, we've put a lot of um, not just sweat equity, but capital into those areas. And we've, we've reaped the benefits of that. And so uh, what we've decided to do is to continue to take a close look at some of the things that we are able to offer in the math and the ELA areas with our specialists and our coaches and uh, the work that they're doing hands-on with teachers, but also in uh, many cases, in many respects, with our individual students, how we might be able to duplicate uh, some of that work because we are seeing those positive advances in, in those two particular curriculum areas. And then for our qualitative data, I'm not going to read these. Um, for you, but we like uh, this piece as well because this is one of those um, slides or areas when um, Dr. Weilerman is able to reach out to the schools and ask what are the what what are the items that or data points that you want us to to list that you're very proud of, and so we have some qualitative data points there listed for you to to take a look at. We felt that this slide was important because it really speaks to who we are in Falls Church City Public Schools, and it speaks to the professionalism and the thirst to, for um, learning, growth, and development uh, among our, our teaching staff, our instructional staff. And, th and that is that we have 75% of our teaching force 
that has a master's degree. And we didn't do any kind of comparative analyses um, of that number, but we um, we do know that, and you all have shared, and, and our parents have shared, and um, those of us who spend time in classrooms have shared that uh, our teachers are good. Like we have, you go into a classroom and uh, have an opportunity to observe teaching and learning. Our teachers are really good, um, but they are. They're highly trained and they're, um, they, they always seek opportunities for learning, growth, and development, especially um, personally making that commitment um, to being a lifelong learner. And so that was a data point that we wanted to share that 75% because it is something that we're very proud of. So in summary, our three key points that we would like to leave you with this evening because we, we shared a lot with you, but number one, we are closing in on that 90% pass rate, which is a goal that we've set, um, which was that pre-pandemic um, pass rate across all of the five tested categories. We're also continuing to refine and develop more usable uh, data points in, within the platforms um, that would allow for easier access. And like we said, if we can position ourselves and our staff to be um, better equipped to use the data, to understand the data, and to leverage the various um, platforms and modes that, um, that we're currently engaging in, then uh, we know that's going to help student achievement metrics. And then we also can't fail to, to recognize that we have some work to do. And although we have seen positive uh, marks and increases in our gap groups, we do know that in when we do start to disaggregate those data points and we care but we compare our gap groups to the overall aggregate scores it's great to be number one um, or number two in some areas number three in an area and that's something that we're extremely proud of it's great to have so many ib diploma candidates and when we look at the percentage of students who are national merit scholars all of those data points that we shared that make us number one we also know that um, we have work to do with our gap groups and we have to continue to dig in and, and do that intervention, the leveling up, the accelerated uh, instruction, um, as well as the intervention um, practices to close those gaps. And so that's where we will remain committed. And it, with that, we are uh, open to taking any questions you may have for us. Thank you, Dr. Bates. Thank you, Dr. Wallman. Any questions or comments? Yes, Ms. Tice. Thank you again. This is, uh, it's again, just so fun to see in black and white all the good work that's happening. But I also appreciate um, focusing in and drilling down on the work that we still have to do. I'm just curious, and not that it necessarily needed to be in this presentation, but what kind of data we have um, that, that are tracking cohorts of kids that you know, especially you know we hear a lot of concerns from parents of the of the years of COVID and those early especially the students who were really young during those years and I know we weren't gathering data during cer certain times during COVID but do we have data on the cohort say like the current third fourth or fifth grade that we can look at those that group of kids as they move along as opposed to looking at third grade every year or fourth grade every year. I think that's a little, little trickier because we don't, students don't necessarily take the same assessments every year. 
so your cohort group changes and so how you would do that i actually think the the way we did it this year with the quarters you know looking at the quarters is not a bad way to do it not a bad way to look at it but because this the co a the cohorts changed we we do have some transiency not a ton but we do have some um and we the trick another tricky part is that we're using it's a, it's either using raw data or adjusted data and so once it becomes adjusted data i can't change it and if we go to raw data then it, it skews it's a little different than what's in the the adjusted data from the state so it there's some trickiness to it um, but that's something we could look at, look at how we could maybe do that next year. Can I, can I add to that? I, th Please. I think just to kind of maybe put a finer point on it, um, one of the things that has been driven home to us over um, the length of time that these SOLs have been in place is that they're not scalable from grade level to grade level. And so it's hard to know ultimately whether a student in third grade moving to fourth grade is making the same growth that they made mm -hmm. the year before. Um, so one advantage that we are um, that we've looked at this year is this the growth piece because there is a growth model in the state that's currently being used for kids that are struggling so we could go back and look at that for kids that are from year to year did they make similar growth did they see less growth it's harder with the uh, SOLs to say it wasn't a pass and now it is a pass because they don't scale or now it's a pass advanced because they don't scale um, all that to say, and, and this is more of a statement I hope that the board can kind of get behind too, is that we are, as a staff, proponents of growth measures as much as possible. You know, we, we know that we have a certain number of kids that are coming in that didn't have any language instruction in their home language. Now they're coming here and don't have any instruction in English. And so to subject a student like that to an SOL is inappropriate, yet we have to do it. So it's much better um, to then be able to back end that with, okay, well, here's where they were from this point, here's where they are now, so let's look at growth. I say that because um, the state is considering doing away potentially with growth measures, and I think that they're really useful um, for, for us as an educational institution. Um, there is some movement um, towards, it's called the VVOS system, which is a, it's the same system that Ohio is using for growth, um, and the state of Virginia is looking at it, but there's no guarantee that we'll be able to have growth measures in the future. But I really think to your point, Ms. Tice, is if we have those growth measures, we have a much better opportunity to longitudinally determine whether or not students are making gains, because year over year SOL reports don't really help us all that much because one year an assessment by a 15 questions might be passing the next year 19 questions might be passing and the next assessment and the next year it might be eight it just depends on the assessment right. I hope that no, helps no that's very helpful thank you um and and again i'm not suggesting that it needed to be in this presentation but i'm curious something thinking like those younger years before they take the sols but they're still taking the star reading and the star math and things like that is there a way for for teachers or 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 other um, professionals to be looking at at the cohort data and how those kids are making gains. I know it's not the same as a pass fail because star test is a very different test. But um, is there a way for them to be looking at cohorts over time? Like how is the class of twenty thirty two or whatever year it is? Like how are they? Have they are they growing year by year at the same rate that we're used to? Sort of. I mean. 
it would be, I think, comforting to know that we're sort of recovering from COVID in that way as well, too, because some we don't have data on those kids because they were too young. Um, I think, I think the take. PALS data does show a lot of that um, by grade. Um, and I think it, it, for teachers, it's more important for who's in their class and tracking those kids over the year and making progress that way. Um, but I do know the principals review that data all the time. They look at the different groups and see how that's happening. Um, but it, I mean, if we're looking at before, PALS is one of our, uh, our best tools to use then because you kind of have a beginning, middle, and the middle is only for students who are struggling. So that, that's kind of one we may not look at, mm -hmm. but we have the beginning and end so we can kind of see where they started, how they grew. Um, and I think our rates are very strong there. Uh, and that gives teachers an idea for what to instruct the next year, and then they get the, the benchmark at the beginning of the year again. But it's a, it's a great question. Um, you know, one of the, just to sort of add on, one thing we, we do really well, I think, is providing timely and tailored intervention for kids. So we know who some of those kids were that really struggled during COVID, and we've provided that intervention to sort of help them move forward. Um, and I would say, by and large, the students are back to where they were pre-pandemic. I think the bigger challenge for us is understanding kids that perhaps were passing during you know, the pandemic, but could have been passing advanced, that maybe weren't subject, subject to intervention necessarily because they were doing okay. Um, I think that's the bigger challenge, but you know, it's a good, that's a good thing for us to take back and kind of, kind of noodle around a little yeah. bit. And I'm, I don't know that there's an easy answer or, but I think it was interesting. It came up at, at the parent coffee a couple weeks ago, just looking at, um, you know, this cohort of current fourth graders, they were the K K one kids during COVID. And so, you know, what does, what's unique about this cohort? because of their time you know, during COVID. And somebody suggested, you know, I think maybe it's fine motor skills because they spent extra time on screens and weren't having the same fine motor skills holding the pencil as much as they would have if they'd been in the classroom. Or, or that's just an example, you know, little things like that. And I think it would be interesting. And that's not going to get captured in data from a, <laughs> from a standardized yeah. test, I realize. But, you know, there's just, it's interesting to think about what these cohorts as a, as a group, you know, experienced and where they might where they might have gaps or or at the beginning of the year it'd be helpful for the whole grade of teachers to say okay look at the data for the the current the class coming into them and what is unique about this class from a data perspective or from a where where were they during covid what might it, what might, gaps might exist uniquely for this particular grade it's just something to to noodle through there's no obvious answer to it actually just following up on that uh because i think uh board member tice raises a good point um, from a data system perspective, do we actually store the data for the students to be able to analyze data longitudinally? And I understand that, and I'm very familiar with this, so I'm, I'm asking the question. So, I, I, you know, do we have a data system that actually can do this? Um, I know our SI system is going to have limitations on this. Um, it is, and we're more and more cleaning up our performance matters, which ties into our SIS and giving more and more data points there. Um, but they're holes. And so that's part of that whole process that I talked about early on that we're trying to clean up our data, get our data measures cleaner. Um, we actually just went on a training last last Friday and um, the, the, the manufacturer is even recommending that we kind of reorganize some of our data that's in there so it will be more usable. So the answer is probably long-term yes, we need to get there. Um, and and we're, every day we're getting closer. Um, but for, for this year, it's. I don't want to say across the board, yeah, we can get to it for every student, but we're, we're making progress. That's one of our goals. 
Okay, because that, that would be a separate data system. I mean, a, a longitudinal data store that you would have to port the data over to to get to what Ms. Tice is saying. Um, it's not, and that's a, that's just a different data system, which I think is I think is something that would be interesting if we were going to invest in this because I think I think as as Dr. Dimmick has said over the years, comparing longitudinally and comparing ourselves to how we grow is important, and and that's a. That's a complicated IT setup. It's not just like getting a vendor that is p providing SIS and just trying to push them into a longitudinal organization of the data. So we're talking about an anonymized student ID that would be able to track and import and store data around assessments. Like that's, which I think would be great if we could do that, but it doesn't sound like we have that right now anyway. We will, as we continue to work on those platforms, we're getting, we're going in that direction. Um, again, a lot of it's the setup. And so, again, performance matters is more and more being used by staff. They're going in there and they can see longer term da data. Um, but there are, if, if we can make some adjustments to our system, I think we'll be able to do exactly what you're wanting in a couple years. But again, the setup is, it's all in the setup. Yes. Uh, and we're, we're trying to move in that direction. Um, as quick as we can, but again, it's it, it's a relatively small office, and we're 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 working on that. What they're trying to do, that company, Power School, is exactly what you're talking about. They're they want to see where you can drill down on a group of kids. You you pick a group. You can you can select a group of kids. It could be five kids. It could be a whole class, and you can drill down and look at them very quickly. What their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, how they can use you know teachers can use the data. What uh, and they're going even deeper on like what strands they're doing well in and and that sort of thing, um, but again, a they're a little ways away from it still, mm -hmm. and and b we still have more prep work that we need to do on our end to make it more useful. With that being said, I'm very excited that more and more teachers are going into performance matters because I do think um, it has a, a rich data set in there for many students, and we're getting more and more every every week. We're adding stuff in. And the fact that teachers are asking me to put data in there is really exciting. Um, and I know I'm kind of a data geek that way, but that's the first step. People getting in there, starting to use it, seeing what's in there. Uh, you know, our MTSS people are going in there, in there a lot now to see what's going on. Um, our specialists are going there to see, they're asking for access to get it. Even our counselors are now asking for it because they just want to see what's in there. So I think it's exciting. It's an exciting time and it's just gonna take us a little while, but definitely something for us to think about as a division on how we want to work that, um, you know, this year, next year, and down the road. And from a funding standpoint, because, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that would be something we might want to think about. So, yeah, because I do know the PowerSchool product and the marketing is definitely farther ahead than the technology is. So, yeah. Um, I do have a few questions. Okay, great. Uh, I, overall, really appreciate all the, the work on this to you and your team. Um, this is uh, one of my favorite presentations. Uh, and, uh, and, and I'm excited about seeing, especially the longitudinal arrangement of the data. Um, one of the questions I had was about the um, absenteeism. Um, I'm on slide 40. Um, you, meant, you, you noticed that there was a significant jump in the absenteeism from 6.84 to 15.6. Um, I know there was a change in the definition of the code for absenteeism in Virginia in 2021. Um, and I don't know if that might have influenced the higher number because it's not a apples to apples. It could be, but it's just something to look at. That might be why that number has increased significantly. Um, I would have imagined that it would have been the 2021 year, not the 2022 year. You know, um, so that could have been it. I, I, I can get the code for you on that. Um, 
The other question or comment I had was about the um, the English uh, language learners for, um, let's see, 2018. I'm trying to remember the slide uh, that you had that presented. Um, oh, yeah, it's a slide 47. Um, we had a significant increase in a positive direction from our pass-fail rate from 2018 to 2022, um, and really 2021, 2022. Any reasons why there's such a significant and positive increase, which is great. I'm just trying to highlight that. Um, any changes to uh, 47? Yeah. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, 47. Yeah, it's the last on the right side there. Um, you can see our pass-fail rate is 32% pass, and it jumps significantly up to 54 and then 65, which is really green. We should have a different shade green for that. Um, but any, any thoughts or any hypothesis on why that's such a great so. number on that? I think there's a couple of things. Um, one is... Um, of course, uh, Dr. Santiago would say we have great teachers, yeah. <laughs> and, and we do, and I would say the same thing. Um, we have staffed up, um, for sure. We have far more um, ESOL teachers or EL teachers than um, are required by the, the code um, to the extent that I think we're overstaffed and only compared to the SOQ by like five teachers were over, overstaffed, something like that. Um, but the other part of it, and, and it's again, this is one of those deeper dives you kind of need to go into to see where are the cohorts of kids, and this is kind of goes back to your question too, is, um, is were the cohorts of kids that were being tested kids that came in with a WIDA level two, a WIDA level three, a WIDA level four, mm -hmm. they may have had some experience with their home language by, so for example, if I'm a student from another country and I've been in school while I've been in the other country and I come here, I'm pr likely to come in uh, much more ready to learn English as opposed to having not had any experience in English, in, or in my, in any experience in school in my home language and those students come in and really struggle. So it, it really is in that particular incidence uh, with e English language learners, very dependent on the students that we're getting and how much experience they have in education from their, from their home mm -hmm. and, and when they come in. So they could come in in ninth grade, have no experience in school all the way up to ninth grade, but they come here and it's the first time they've been in school. Um, where we have some kids that come in in kindergarten or first grade who've had preschool in their home. Yeah. Um, so it, it's just, it, it's really hard to know. And that's why those exit rates from ESOL are really complicated to look at to say, we want an exit rate of X by this amount of time. Because one kid may take three years to be proficient in English and another may take seven. Um, and so I, I you know, I think it's great news. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I, I, but I also want to manage expectations a little bit to say it could be kids that had WIDA levels that were higher mm -hmm. that um, came in having better understanding of English than um, other cohorts that may come through in the future. That makes sense. Yeah. And that's oh, go ahead, Dr. the only thing I would add is if you uh, look on the slide, um, which is slide um, 54. The growth rate in 21, 22, and 22, 23 is pretty impressive. Hmm. So the kids are making a lot of growth. Um, and so, again, I, 
I, I think if we take those two slides in, in, in mm-hmm. tandem, you can say kids are making a lot of growth in our district related to those, um, but notwithstanding Peter's, Dr. Noonan's comments, I think are definitely something we need to keep in mind. Okay, that's great. And I think Dr. Noonan's... I would also add, if, if I may, and you know, to the, to the previous points, there's a lot of things, I think a lot of variables we would have to look at as far as potential implications. But I would be remiss if I didn't um, offer up that about three, about three or three or four maybe years ago, um, we partnered with George Mason and Dr. Santiago led a cohort of certified curriculum teachers. So teachers who were certified in a math or in English or a science or a social studies through the ESOL certification process. And so um, that's something I know that we're really proud of. And over the last couple of years, we've continued to look for um, positive implications that having those core curriculum certified teachers also be able to get ESOL certified and then support in teaching of English language or multi-language, multilingual learners is the term um, that we use now. Okay, okay, thank you. Um, And then (laughs) slide 56. I'm getting to the end. Uh, uh, for the community, can you help uh, educate us on how to read this from a, what does success look like or what is, you know, where do we need to grow on this? And from one perspective, we see the number of students that are um, assessed. You know, let's look at the spring 2021, 132 kindergartners were assessed and 17% were identified. And then if you, and again, this is a loose longitudinal to Ms. Tice's point, but if we look at them in first grade the following year, we have 10% that are identified. And then as their second graders, again, this is a loose longitudinal uh, example, then we have 10%. Is that success that we've got less students are identified over the years? Is the goal to be decreasing that number? Like what is that, how do we read that? That's a, that's a very good question. So what we're really looking at, we want the lower the the lower number of percent ID, the better. So we really want to get as low as possible. Um, but remember back to slide 55. There are more grade one is just loaded with um, with data with with uh, reading milestones and reading things that have to happen. Um, and then um, so that's that's a difficult year. Um, and so, you know, you would expect maybe a little blip up and then a little, little blip down. Um, but what we're trying to do there is we're looking for as low a percent ID as possible. So okay. that's what we're looking at. Okay. So over time, we're hoping that number starts to decrease. Correct. Okay. Because okay. there would be more, more, you know, better readers. Exactly. Okay. That makes sense. Um, and then the qualitative, uh, uh, let's see, the qualitative slide, slide 62, just a couple questions on there. And the student... Um, I imagine our student rep down sitting down to the end there is probably one of these students that shows up on many of these slides. Um, so congratulations, Sean, on that. Um, the, uh, uh, you had here uh, the Falls Church Education Foundation, which is a great partner of ours. It's the nonprofit uh, of the year. What, what, just curious, right. what is that for? Yeah, no, the um, Chamber of Commerce um, at a recent celebration that they had gala 
um, named the Falls Church Ed Foundation as the nonprofit of the year in the city of Falls Church. Great. Okay. Yeah. No, that's that's a, a, a great uh, recognition. Um, and then the um, let's see, just a, just some names. The Mount Daniel music teacher. Uh, do you mind? Nicole Guimera. Okay, great. Congratulations. And then there was a staff member, um, the pillar of the community. Mary Beth Connolly. Mary Beth Connolly. Okay, that's great. So, yeah, this is great to have. Yeah, all these all these celebrations have names behind them. Yes. That's for sure. <laughs> I did want to, um, since uh, you brought it up, um, and I got a quick text from Dr. Santiago, who is watching. She said to remind everybody that we are doing a second cohort of uh teachers to get their ESOL endorsement as well. Oh, great. Okay. That's great. Okay. Um, okay. I think that's, <laughs> I'm about to get kicked under the table. No, so. no. This is your, this is your, this is your night, Vice Chair Gould. <laughs> Dr. Dimmick. Thank you very much for that presentation. Um, so I've been through many of these presentations and I, I always ask for the same information and I, it's my last one and I will ask for it yet again. Um, Falls Church City is a really unique school district. We are very small, but we are also exceedingly high educated compared to, um, to compared to um, you know, other parts of Virginia, and we have a pretty high socioeconomic status. So, comparing us to our neighboring districts um, is, or the state especially, is perhaps not the most productive way to understand our um, our understand how we're doing. Um, so I guess I would again suggest that it would be lovely to have comparisons to you know, a similar demographic. Um, maybe some of you got in the, received in the mail this week a free Northern Virginia magazine with top high schools. And um, the magazine has provided me with SOL data comparison for neighboring high schools. And I, I think our community deserves to have it from us, not from the magazine. Um, so I think that it would be useful to have. Um, I do appreciate that um, you've added the um, advanced pass rates for the SOL. It might be useful in future presentations, and I know the sample size decreases, um, but if we can break down our SOL data to our schools. So for example, um, in 21-22, the advanced pass rate for math was 25%. Um, but if we look at the magazine here, that same year for Meridian, the advanced pass, pass rate was just over 11%, which is different from 25%. So it could be interesting to look at that by school. Um, and then I guess, um, thank you for including the PSAT data. It seems to me that might be, um, I know in our, in our high school, kids take the PSAT in 9th, 10th, and 11th, it, that might be useful comparison over time because it's very much a standardized test. Um, and then finally, I guess in future it might be also very interesting to add breakdowns by sex. How are boys doing? How are girls doing? I um, enjoyed going to graduation and the program and did the sort of a back of the program calculation. Um, not exact because of you know there are a lot of there are probably some gender neutral names and and um, um, but adding up the the um, Meridian scholars and and valedictory scholars that group combined 
uh, for the girls is is 45 percent of that graduating class and that group combined for the boys is 26 percent of that graduating class that's a that's a rather large difference um, and I think we need to better understand what's going on there. Now I could be a little off because I just, you know, it truly is a back of the program calculation, um, but perhaps worth looking into in the future. Thank you. Thanks. As a mom of four boys, it <laughs> doesn't surprise me that stat you just gave. No, it's, it's actually very interesting. I, um, I first noticed it when we had graduation on TV during COVID. And uh, I think every student speaker was female. So it's just an interesting, you know, interesting thing to, to dive into, I think, at some point, either during this dated presentation. Any other questions or anything? Yes, Ms. Tice. I don't want to get too far off topic here, but just one other thing on that point that um, came up in the advisory committee last week is that our current sixth grade class is 70% boys, um, which is wild to me. And I think the kindergarten class is pretty close to that. Um, and I have n no idea if um, there's anything that needs to be addressed with that. But I thought that was interesting in terms of tracking data. And I don't know. I know that gets complicated with with gender in general. Um, but it is an interesting point to kind of watch that over mm -hmm. over time. Uh, thank you. Um, any other questions or comments? I just had uh, two quick questions. Uh, one, I thought. Uh, I really like the qualitative slide and uh, just so comprehensive and, and really gives a full picture of, of our school system. You know, we, I, uh, Dr. Noon and I uh, attend the Education Foundation meetings and they submit an annual report, but it might be interesting um, not to just make this report bigger and bigger every year. I feel like this is going to be 500 pages in the next school board. but. Uh, I think it would be interesting maybe to include a couple of the really high level um, super grants that are that are given mm -hmm. um, as a way to just really educate the public on, you know, the great things that the foundation is doing. I mean, we run it in morning announcements, but, you know, maybe the ones that are more tied to really academic, you know, there are some things that are really tied to academic outcomes, I feel like. Um, and then I guess this question is for Dr. Noonan. Um, the ESSER positions, those are funded through this, the current the current fiscal year? That's correct. Okay. And do we have any idea either can you ballpark it like the number of positions or the dollar number? I want to say it's seven? Five. Five and a half. Five and a half. Okay. And you anticipate um, that we would, we're going to try to fund all, all five and a half of those positions? I think we need to have a good conversation about it. Okay. I, I would rather not say what no, we're going to do I know. at this of point. Of course, of course. Um, I think some of them have had pretty significant impact in some of the data that you're seeing, uh, but everyone on an ESSER grant was told going in that they're in a one-year-only position. So mm -hmm. um, if if we can, we, we'd probably like to, but okay. I think, you know, it sort of depends on what the budget looks like. Okay. Thank you. Any other comments or questions? That well, brings us to our last slide. Oh, sorry. Wait. We have one more. There oh, <laughs> uh, well, and thank you, uh, Dr. Bates, to thank all the doctors now, Dr. Bates, Dr. Wallerman, Dr. Anderson, and Dr. Gould. Thank you all so much. Um, and I just, Dr. Newton, thank you for um, allowing, you know, I know this is a little bit unusual to have the school board sit down with staff to really go over this, but I know speaking for Dr. Anderson, Dr. Gould, they really enjoyed uh, working with, with you both. And um, so just, thank you for being open to that and uh, thank you both for your time thank you both for your i think this has really just been a 
terrific presentation, very illuminating, and I think, ooh, and I think so many, just very well-rounded and looking at data in so many different ways, so. And for the record, it was 20 slides less than last year. Oh! <laughs> Even I, better. We heard our charge, make it shorter. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you again. Okay, well, with that, now we're gonna turn over to we're going to turn it over to some different kind of numbers, budget numbers, and I'll send it over. Thank you, Dr. Bates. Good to see you. Safe travels back. Uh, Great to see everyone. Good evening. Take care. Thanks again. I know. Is he in California? He's in Arizona. Uh, I was very jealous. I was like, why is it still daylight out? Uh, Dr. Noonan, do you want me to turn it right over to Ms. Michael? Or? Yeah, um, I, I'll just say that this is our annual year-end. Um, closeout budget uh, process and want to thank um, Kristen Michael, our Chief Operating Officer, and also Michelle Kopic for their incredible work. Um, we apologize, there's been three or four iterations that's gone up on board docs, you know, just making sure that it's exactly right for the public, but um, to maintain, maintain integrity of the process and um, good transparency, we wanted to make sure that the numbers were really 100% uh, accurate. So we are um, uh, we're pleased to share this tonight, and also you may hear about some of the things we've been talking about um, this evening already. So I'll turn it over to Mr. Michael. Thank you so much for the opportunity to present the FY23 final budget report for the School Operating Fund, the Food Service Fund, and the Community Services Fund. All of the data that I'll present tonight is as of June 30th, and it is still subject to our final audit. The first thing that I want to do is thank Michelle Kopic, FCCPS's Director of Budget and Finance, for her work not only on this report tonight, but for her work on developing the budget at the beginning of the year and managing all of the financial transactions throughout the year. Michelle's efforts are supported by our finance assistants at all of our schools and by our very engaged school leaders. So I want to thank all of them, and especially Michelle, who's watching us tonight. So um, the first thing I'm going to go over is the school operating fund, um, which is the chart shown on the screen. In the school operating fund, our revenue totaled 63.5 million, and that included the planned use of fund balance. Our expenditures totaled 59.6 million, and our encumbrances, or our outstanding orders, totaled 1.7 million. So as a result of that revenue, expenditures, and encumbrance, we have a total of 2.2 million available for the school board's consideration. That amount does include $932,815 that was funding from excess revenue through our revenue sharing agreement from last October that we set aside in February for future priorities. So first I just want to go over some revenue highlights. Um, overall, our other revenue was $374,885 higher than budgeted. So when we look at where that variance is coming from, it's coming from tuition charged to students um, who are attending Falls Church City Public Schools and live outside our jurisdiction or students attending Jesse Thackeray Preschool. It also includes interest. This year our interest proceeds were $143,010. That is up significantly from the $9,067 we got last year. We also had revenue from our stop arm cameras. We budgeted that at 55,000, but our revenue for that category came in at $219,025. That was really consistent with the prior year when it was $217,950. Um, so when we look at fund balance on this chart, the use of fund balance is historically reflected at the end of the year. We had budgeted 3.8 million in fund balance. That included the 450,000 in the original FY23 adopted budget. And it also included all of the budget adjustments that we made in February. 
So to improve transparency on this chart, we've reflected that all of that fund balance was utilized um, to give a very clear picture of our re revenue budget overall. When we look at state revenue, our state revenue in total just came in $13,470 less than budgeted, so really close. But when we look at that number a little bit more, our state aid was $203,786 lower than budgeted. And that is a result of that final budget adopted by the General Assembly, as well as our ADM, our average daily membership. But that was offset by sales tax proceeds. Sales tax was $190,316 higher than budgeted. So Falls Church City Public Schools, we receive our sales tax on a statewide basis, which is different than the general government, which gets it just on locality sales. So overall, our sales tax came in 5.5% higher than budgeted, and that budget projection came from the state. But it was 5% lower than the previous year, right? And that was due to adjustments in the tax code um, made by the General Assembly. Federal revenue overall was $39,544 lower than budgeted, and that's primarily due to pandemic funding grants that are reimbursable grants. So as we continue to spend that grant dollars, we will get all of that federal revenue. Our budget for fund transfers on this chart also was lower than budgeted, and that was based on our final expenditures for our pandemic-funded positions from the general government, and that included the English for Speakers of Other Languages, a counselor position, and psychology services. So that is all of the variances in terms of the revenue side of the chart. On the expenditure side, our salaries were 1.3% under budget. That variance was a slight increase from the prior year when it was 1.1%. And when we look at salaries, we um, underspent on regular salaries, but we overspent on categories like substitutes, part-time salaries, and extra pay for extra duties. Our benefits were underspent just slightly at 0.5%. And then our contracted services came in 6.4% lower than budgeted. That was primarily due to the funding we set aside for collective bargaining last fiscal year that we didn't fully expend, as well as we didn't fully expend our budget for tuition to other school divisions. Those two things were offset by higher than budget expenditures in both repairs and maintenance. The next category, utilities, insurance, and travel um, and rental, all of those came in about 189,000 uh, less than budgeted. That variance is primarily due to electricity, tel telecommunications, and insurance being higher than budgeted. And those variances were all offset by lower than budgeted expenditures for lease rental of equipment and building rental. Our next category is materials and supplies. They were 173,971 lower than budgeted. In this category as well, you'll see that we had um, expenditures higher than budgeted for vehicle fuel and custodial supplies, and they were offset by underspending on educational supplies and computer software. The next category of capital and capital reserves were overspent by $690,935. That was primarily the result of the purchase order for the electric bus that will receive federal funding back um, from the community development grants from um, Don Byer. Um, as well as some lease capital redemptions um, that were reflected in that category. Um, from the general government's FY22 final budget review at the bottom of this chart, you can see that we have $932,815 set aside. Um, so when the pandemic funding and other priorities were approved by the board last February, we had left that funding unallocated to be used for future priorities. So you can see that amount in the total fund balance. Um, that we're adding to of $2.2 million. 
In the encumbrances category, I just wanted to go over um, what outstanding orders we have. They totaled $1.7 million this year, which is less than they were last year. I'm at $2.8 million. Some of our large outstanding expenditures for this year include the electric bus, the HVAC system replacement at Maryland Henderson, which we have a substantial amount of payments yet to make, and then funding for a responsive classroom training um, that the board approved last February that's currently underway. I'm going to move us to the fund balance chart. So in terms of fund balance, the last column on the right in FY23, um, we began FY23 with a school operating fund balance of $4.6 million. From that fund balance, we utilized $3.8 million in our FY23 budget. Then after we account for our actual revenue expenditures and outstanding encumbrances, and after we account for the budgeted fund balance that we have in our FY24 budget, our school operating fund balance totals $2.5 million. Then tonight at the City Council meeting, the Falls Church General Government is sharing their year-end report and included in that will be an additional $920,500 in one-time funding um, that will come to us as part of our revenue sharing agreement for FY23. So when you add that, it brings our total funding available to $3.4 million for school board consideration. So from that funding, we would like to make some recommendations in terms of how to allocate that funding to address current um, one-time needs. So the first thing is baseball field improvements. Um, last year, the school board did set aside funding of $100,000 to help us improve our baseball field. But as we contacted vendors, the need for that is, is significantly greater. Um, as we all know, the field is not level. The netting behind the field needs to be um, repaired or maintained. Um, because that field netting needed to be repaired, we haven't installed the press box that we have. Um, so when we really looked at that field in totality, right, we've really realized that we need to make a significant investment in terms of improving that field. So we've been working with vendors. We have a number of different proposals in terms of maintaining the current orientation, flipping the field orientation, and looking at different surfaces for that field, including natural turf, synthetic turf, or a combination of both. Um, so we are asking to set aside this funding and we would like to work with the Meridian Administration, the Meridian Athletics, and our baseball boosters to really develop a long-term plan in terms of addressing this baseball field, which was the one field in our high school renovation um, that really wasn't touched in terms of that, that high school project. The second item that we're recommending is um, our door badge replacement system. So Falls Church City Public Schools and the general government have always used the same door badge system, which is a card reader system that allows access into all of our buildings. Their system was failing, so they've went ahead and they've replaced it with the new Genetech system. And we would like to replace ours as well, so we can ensure that all of um, their employees, public safety and the like, have access to our buildings by maintaining being on the same system. That would require an investment for our side of $67,885. The next item is to support our energy action plan. The school board adopted our government operations energy action plan. And in combination with the general government, we would like to partner 50-50 on a number of enhancements that we think will serve both of our organizations very well. The first is updating their fleet management software. Um, what they're using to manage our fleet is 20 years old. Um, this would give them a really modern cloud-based system that would help them track mileage, fuelage, consumption, schedule repairs, and the like. So we're, we're super excited about that improvement there. 
The second item is to help us with energy audits, so hiring a company to come in and audit our energy use and to give us opportunities to improve. And the third is an HVAC control system analysis, really looking at where can we do better in terms of our control systems. So our share for all of those items, half of that cost, would be $60,000. The next item is bus routing software. Um, we are requesting to purchase and implement student transportation powered by Transversa. It's a Tyler Systems product. We use Tyler um, in combination with the general government for our financial system. Um, so this Tyler product would help us with bus routing, fleet maintenance, as well as all of our field trips and scheduling of routes. Um, the next item that we have are electric buses. Um, we have about 24 buses in our fleet, and if we want to maintain a current replacement cycle of 12 years, we should be purchasing two new buses each fiscal year. And as part of our government energy, <laughs> our government operations energy action plan, we talked about purchasing electric buses instead of diesel buses. So this recommendation would purchase two electric buses for us this year, and that total is just over $800,000. The remaining two items that we have, the first is a demographer. Again, this is a shared partnership with our general government. Um, we are contracting with the Stephen Fuller Institute to provide updated demographic information, including enrollment projections that will come to the school board on November 14th. And our half of the cost of that demographer project is $30,000. Then the last item is collective bargaining. The unspent funding from collective bargaining from last year has fallen into our ending balance. So we're recommending that the school board at this point set aside $100,000 towards collective bargaining costs in this next year. Um, if additional funding beyond this is needed, we would bring a request back to the school board for additional funding. And then any unspent funding would be returned to the fund balance next year, just like it was in the last year. So that is everything for the school operating fund. Um, and all of those totals together would bring our fund balance down um, to just about $300,000. All right, for the food service fund, um, revenue in the first food service fund totaled 1.3 million, expenditures totaled 1.2 million. So as a result, um, we're going to add to our fund balance by $125,399. So a few highlights in terms of revenue for the food service fund. Um, overall revenue came in 17.1% higher than budgeted. Um, that was largely due to federal revenue that we receive in support for our national school breakfast and lunch programs. Um, and so this year, no funding from the operating fund is needed to support the food service fund. When we look at expenditures for the food service fund, um, they were 5.8% higher than budgeted. Salaries were 5.6% higher and benefits were actually 24.4% um, lower, and that was primarily based on employees' health insurance choices. When we look at other expenditures for food, um, our food costs this year were $103,778 higher than budgeted, and our paper supplies were $21,644 higher than budgeted. So overall, um, in this category, we would be adding to fund balance by $125,000. When we look at the food service fund balance, um, which is shown on this page, um, our food service fund balance in FY24 does exceed three months of their average expenditures, um, which is higher um, than generally we would like it to be. Um, so their plan in terms of addressing their fund balance is to implement a preventative maintenance program at all of their sites. And they would also like to continue with some equipment replacement. This last year they replaced their point of sale terminals. And next year they would like to purchase um, 
one heated holding cabinet, and four combi ovens. Um, and then as we think about food service expenditures for this current fiscal year that's just started, um, food service workers did receive salary increases that were at least 10%. And then we adjusted the cost of health insurance. So uh, less than full-time employees will say that pay the same rate as full-time employees. So we do expect to see their benefit costs go up as well for next year. And lastly, our Community Services Fund is really made up of two different activities, um, our daycare program and then our community use of school facilities. So in this fund, our revenue totaled 1.9 million and our expenditures totaled 1.7. So as a result, the increase in fund balance in this fund is $255,451. So in this program, both daycare and community use are self-supporting. So generally, as their um, revenue goes up, their expenditures go up as they hire staff to perform those services. So when we look at revenue overall for the Community Services Fund, it was $392,479 less than budgeted, and that was because fees for services were, were lower than budgeted, primarily in daycare. Um, and then we also did not use the fund balance that was budgeted in this fund. Expenditures were also 28.1% lower for salaries and benefits were 30% lower. So when we look at the fund balance for this fund, because they're two separate self-supporting activities, we included a chart at the bottom that shows the fund balance for each of their activities separately. So of that increase in fund balance of $255,000, $219,259 is for daycare, and then the $36,395 um, increases what's attributable to community use. So for both of these funds, they're fully self-supporting and that fund balance will be used in future years to meet their program costs. So thank you for the opportunity this evening to present our FY23 year-end financial report. Thank you so much, Ms. Michael and Ms. Kopic. I know you're watching, thank you so much. Uh, any questions or comments? Yes, Ms. Silverman. Thank you for the presentation, for all your work on this, um, and, and your team's work on this. Are these things that we're approving at some point, are these recommendations for the next budget? What's the schedule on this? Thank you for that question. I should have highlighted that. This evening we're presenting all of the financial results to you and going over what things we recommend. We would bring them to you in October at your school board meeting in October to vote. So that's separate from the budget process? Yes, because if we want to go ahead and utilize this funding to start these things now, we would like to get your approval now versus waiting until the budget comes out in January. Okay. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Right, because this is the year end from, this is money from so, last year. Right, so this is the left, leftover, put in layman's terms, the leftover money from this past fund. No, that makes year. sense. Thank you yeah. for that clarification. And that's usually, and am I right that that's usually what we use for one-time expenses? Exactly, because we really do want to spend any of our one-time balances on those one-time expenditures. All of this data will be incorporated into when we develop the budget for FY25. So we're just now kicking off our budget process for next year, and as part of that, um, each school and department did receive their reports with their expenditures for this last year and the budget for the current year. So we'll really go through each of these um, actual revenues and expenditures from FY23 that just ended um, and use that analysis as we start to build the budget request for FY25. 
One other clarification, just in terms of um, drawing down our ending balance, we this would be as close to the um, lowest point that I think we've ever been in the last seven years or so, um, $390,000 or so. And I, I think we feel comfortable and confident knowing that that number is, is low. Uh, because typically we'll put four hundred thousand dollars in of right. ending balance into the new budget, right. and that typically falls back out. So, um, not every year, but sometimes, right. if, we're, if we're careful. Right. And that four hundred—that's our, our like arbitrary. It's not in it policy is. or anything. Correct. Okay. Um, so, just two quick quick notes. Um, I guess one is a question. So. Am I right in understanding that school that the um, food services then has is self-sustaining? I remember a couple years ago we had to move I think like five hundred thousand dollars over. Correct. We okay. did give the food service fund five hundred thousand dollars two years ago mm -hmm. um, because their expenditures were far exceeding their revenue. Um, but then when the pandemic struck and all of the students were eligible for um, free meals, right, their re federal revenue came in significantly higher and covered all of their expenditures. And for this last year, again, their revenue exceeded their expenditures. So they're still in a solid position. Okay. And you, you foresee that continuing? Yes. And okay. as we look at doing these equipment purchases for this next year, right, we'll closely monitor the impact that increased salaries have for this year and the benefit selections that the food service employees made in terms of those health benefits. And we'll look at that data prior to making these equipment purchases. Okay, great. Well, M Mr. Kane and his staff do an excellent job. And uh, I know our boys are always complimenting the food, except Matthew Downs wants whole milk in the cafeteria, and he's going to lobby for He's He's going to Abigail Spamberger to lobby for whole milk. I'm just warning you. You mean um, President Downs? Yeah. <laughs> um, my, other, my other question is about the buses. Um, so, you know, looking at if we were to change start times and those times become more compressed and enrollment continues to grow, would it make sense to just hold on to those two buses, those gas guzzlers, just as to give in case we need it, two more buses? Yes. You actually okay. would, but you're not allowed. <laughs> oh, if we pay for these if we, outright. If we pay for them, we can, but yes. if they're part of a grant, we're not allowed to. We so, have to dispose of them. So in the past, as we've gotten the electric buses, a requirement has been that we took a uh, diesel bus out of service. And the actual requirement was we had to provide them with proof that it was scrapped. Oh, okay. <laughs> so are these coming out of a grant then? So these, though we're asking the board to use one-time funding from year end, that would be our local funding. So we would be able to retain the buses that we have. And I, I do think we really do want to look at um, how many buses we have. One of the things is as our enrollment has been increasing, we haven't added more buses to our fleet and our buses are getting fuller and fuller. Right. right? So part of the analysis that transportation will be doing as we're working to develop this budget is do we need additional buses? And if we were able to purchase these electric buses and retain the current diesel buses, that would help us provide capacity as we're working towards next year. Yeah, because no, I, the bus, some of the bus lines have been crowded, but also, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about times where um, when we have um, sports and the bus, they have to leave early for sports, but the buses are still doing elementary. And so then we have to charter buses because we don't have enough school buses to take the athletes. So I mean, I just I think we will definitely put them to use if we could hold on to them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, and it, and we'll also have a challenge with drivers as well because right. often times, yeah, right, we have a bus but not a driver because they're all currently. And just to manage the board's expectations and the communities as well, 
for the foreseeable future, we'll ha always have to have some diesel buses in our fleet because of the distances we travel to games. Mm. Um, the electric buses don't have the, the distance capacity to get there and get back. Right, that's a great point. Chair? Yes? We do have an extra driver on the board if we ever need one. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Dr. Noonan still will not approve my application. So. <laughs> Good point, Ms. Silverman. Thank you. Um, and then let's see. The only other thing, I only other question I had was um, the um, salary. So is that, um, I know this is something that my, our old friend Phil Reidinger, you would always get. So were we... Um, we were a little bit, did we, were we too, con so I guess I was looking at, it looked like we were spent a lot on part-time and subs and things. Was that because we were filling in for vacancies in the full-time slot? And I just was trying to piece that together. Yes. Uh, w one of the things that we're absolutely going to do as we start to develop this budget for the next year is look at, when we look at our overall salary fallout, right, it did come in a little bit higher than last year, right? And and since that's our largest ex expenditure, we really do want to manage how much money is available at year end. But this year, when you look at that mix, right, we did overspend in terms of those part-time salaries, substitutes, mm -hmm. and, and those categories. So we really do want to assess that. Right, and then we'll look at do we adjust our lapse percentage, the amount that we're capturing from turnover each year. Mm -hmm. So the other activity we always do at this point in the year is, is we calculate what we call who replaced who, mm -hmm. which is really going through and looking at for all of the people we hired this year as compared to the people who left, right? How much turnover, how much lapse did we generate and how close is that to budget? So I would say that when we've had vacancies and we hire substitutes, that does increase our substitute cost, and that is reflected in the overspending here. Okay. Thank you very much. Any questions or comments? Yes, Vice Chair Gould. Yeah, this is always always very helpful. Um, in terms of the one-time funds, can you clarify again, mostly for the community, about the use of one-time funds and how strategically we use those and why we don't use those for things like salary or extra uh, staff ongoing? I'd be happy to. So the reason we use one-time funding on a one-time purpose is it's not, it's not going to happen again, right? So when we look at our budget each year, we've already adjusted our expectations for the budget in the current year. So let's use our revenue from stop arm cameras, for example, right? If we look at the budget that we have for FY24, right, it's not gonna be the same budget that we had for this year. So when we look at we had excess revenue in that category from this year, well, we've already budgeted a higher expectation for next year. So we're not going to see that funding recur again. So that's why when we have available funding at year end, we spend it on one-time items. If we ever see that we have money that's going to be repeated, we build that into our budget and we use recurring money to pay for expenditures that are going to occur year over year over year. So for example, if we give a salary increase this year, that salary increase is going to continue into our budget base for the next year. So we don't want to use one-time funding to cover that because then we'll need to find more funding to cover that same budget item for the following year. That makes sense, yeah. So I think it's, it's safe to say it's responsible not to be spending these on ongoing recurring costs. Correct. So, okay. The, um, I, the transportation software, I know the community has received a number of emails um, about different transportation issues. Will that software help with any of that, uh, I guess, prediction analysis or logistical analysis? Um, it, or is that separate and more about allocations of resources on buses? So we believe that this software is going to help us in a number of ways. It, um, it's much 
easier and simpler to adjust bus routes, right? Their routing tool is much more intuitive um, and much better. So we really hope that's gonna better help us develop routes and look at the number of people on each route, okay. right? So that's one thing that I think it's going to do much better. They offer another product similar to Here Comes the Bus that's their own product. So their routing software should generate the Here Comes the Bus data right from their system. And we won't need to send that data from our route maps out to a third party mm -hmm. vendor, right? So we hope that that will improve our communication with parents in terms of that bus route data there. Okay. Um, we're hoping we have better interface in terms of our interface with PowerSchool. Right, and then they also have a really nice feature in terms of scheduling field trips and other components. So when we think of athletics, for example, every game that they play is scheduled through our bus routing software used as a field trip, and that helps to assign drivers. So we really hope that this will make us much more efficient, um, both in developing the routes originally and balancing them. I would say one of our biggest challenges this year was getting our routes balanced, right? And you saw that we made a number of adjustments for the same bus routes multiple times as we were trying to get you know, all of the buses to have a similar number of students. Right? Okay. So our hope is that this will really make a difference. That makes sense, okay. Um, and then the, uh, the, the question about um, the baseball field, um, I'm not gonna look over to my left here. Um, you know, given the, the percentage of how much that takes up from our one-time funds, that's a significant cost. Um, Clearly, that's you know there, there's a, as it was mentioned, it was not addressed in our original build out of the high school. Um, how confident are you that that is a need proportional to that amount of money versus you know possibly the two other larger buckets? One of them being classroom intervention. You know, obviously, there's a lot of uh, uh, news right now about tutors and uh, well, the concept of tutors. There's not the availability, um, but classroom intervention costs or possibly any costs or needs that have been expressed by um, like arts program as well. So can you address that please? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, what I would say is our need for our baseball field is substantial, right? Um, for anyone who's been on that field, it's, it's truly not level, right? It's not level when you look at it from far away and it's less level when you're actually on the field, I think. The, the field condition is really terrible, which I hate to say. Right, because that's kind of a bummer because we've got such a great high school and we have tremendous other athletic fields, but, but that field condition is poor. For me, the biggest concern by far is that netting behind home plate. It's been here for a really long time, like over 20 years. It's crazy sky high. It's, it, it's been moaning. We can't get anyone to help us in terms of like certifying that it's you know going to last what maintenance does it need to me that's a true safety issue so for me like fixing that is paramount i, I would do that before anything else on this list because okay. of the student safety component hands down um, when i think of intervention for students and other components um, in the budget that was just signed by the governor last week um, Falls Church City Public Schools is going to get about another $150,000 um, specifically allocated towards that tutoring component that you mentioned or addressing needed student achievement. Um, so I, I feel like we have that additional funding there um, that will help with that. Um, and, and I think as we look at our other programs, arts and other components, you know, my hope is that we can address those as well. But I, but I see the baseball field as really being a safety issue. Okay, and then and like we do every year in the fall, we'll have meetings with 
school-based meetings to collect different needs and resources to get that budget list is that how that works yes exactly so when we start to develop the budget the first thing we do is we send out to all of our schools and departments um, this analysis that michelle Kopic put together that has all of their prior year expenditures all of their budget for this current year and she actually sent them for each expenditure category a list of all of the invoices that they paid in that category so they could look at exactly how they spent their money in case they didn't remember um, so the first step is for them really to begin to do that budget analysis and then to start developing their budget needs that come to us um, that's just the beginning and from there we'll do a ton more engagement and getting input as we develop that budget for next year okay okay thank you Thank you. Dr. Anderson. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for the presentation. Um, uh, so in the baseball field improvements section, it does say that uh, the vendor has uh, provided multiple options. Um, if we could, before the next meeting, get a list of those multiple options and the uh, budgetary impacts of those um, so that we can actually decide whether or not we want to spend $2 million on it, um, that would be great. Um, I think to kind of echo uh, Dr. Gould's sentiment, um, you know, $2 million is a lot of money, um, and it is for a baseball field. And I know that, you know, we want to take care of all students and provide them with the, the best opportunities for, uh, you know, pursuing whatever, whatever passions they have. Um, at the same time, I'm more of the mind to, if we have extra money, to put it into the classroom. Um, and, you know, spending... $2 million and taking the operating fund down to $302,000, which uh, Dr. Noonan mentioned that would be the lowest in seven years. Um, I think that requires a lot more, uh, I think that's gonna require at least a lot more um, uh, discussion um, than perhaps just a quick um, vote uh, on the next meeting. I, I appreciate that, and um, I, and I, I agree. I think it does require more conversation. Um, one of the things that we'll also share with you is what the cost would be to fix the netting and the poles behind the field, um, because that that could be upwards of a million dollars itself. Um, and so, thinking about pouring good money after bad is something that we also need to kind of pay attention to. But we we definitely will. Um, send those options out that'd be great um i also had a quick question on the buses um so electric, electric buses are obviously more expensive than diesel buses for obvious reasons uh, i think it's it's looking like it's uh, each bus is uh 400 2910 dollars or so um how much is a regular diesel bus right around a hundred thousand okay um and are there any indications that perhaps as maybe technology improves future electric buses are going to be maybe cheaper i mean i know that there's also they've already they've already come yeah. down by about three hundred thousand mm -hmm. dollars um the first round of buses we got i think were marked at about seven hundred thousand okay. um so they're dropping to four hundred thousand i just think over time they will um it's more about sort of a cycle of fleet replacement that we're trying to get onto mm -hmm. or that we're trying to maintain we've actually stayed on that cycle for a while thanks yes miss silverman uh, piggybacking off of Dr. Anderson, and thank you for bringing that up. I um, was going to ask the, actually the exact same question, but in addition, can you explain um, the cost savings per year on the electric bus and kind of when you meet, um, when you come to it like a net zero on that uh, on that difference in cost because of the the amount of money we've saved in gas or other repairs that maybe a diesel bus needs that an electric doesn't, and maybe other cost savings that are built into this purchase. 
It's a great question. Um, we'd love to get back to you on that. Great, thank you. <coughs> thank you, Ms. Silverman. And there are questions or comments. Okay, well, thank you, Ms. Michael, very much for this presentation. Ms. Kopic, thank you, as always, is very informative. And uh, more to come on that. Okay, we're going to be going into closed now. And so I guess for the public, we'll be um, signing off here because after close, we're just going to be adjourning. Is that correct? Okay, so we're at 3.01. Uh, if someone could read us into close, please. Yes, Ms. Silverman. Pursuant to the Virginia Freedom of Information Act, I move that the board convene a closed meeting for the following purpose, to discuss or consider the identified subject matter, legal matters under section 2.2-37118A8, in particular consultation with legal counsel employed or retained by the public body regarding specific legal matters regarding the provision of legal advice by such counsel. Thank you, you may have a second. Thank you, Vice Chair Gould. All those in favor say yes. 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 Those opposed say no. Thank you. Motion carries and we'll move into closed.